Thank you. David Beckman, in his capacity as Director of the Agriculture Branch, <coughs> Department of Energy, Mines and Resources at all of the Yukon Territory, li versus Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation at all. Brad Armstrong, QC. Keith Bergner. Penelope Gone. And Leslie McCullough for the appellants and respondents on the cross appeal. Mitchell R. Taylor, QC for the Intervenor Attorney General of Canada. Hughes Melanson and Natasha Lavoie pour l'intervenante Procureur General de Québec. For the Intervenor Attorney General of Quebec. And Justin S. C. Mellor for the Intervenor Attorney General of Newfoundland and Labrador. Jean Taillé, Arthur Pape and Richard Salter for the respondents, appellants on cross appeal. Joseph J. R. Vey, QC and Bruce Elwood for the intervener Quanlan Dunn first. James R. Aldridge, QC and Dominique Nouvet uh, for the intervener Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated. Brian A. Crane, QC for the interveners Gwich'in Tribal Council and Satu Secretariat Incorporated. Jean-Sébastien Clément and François Dandonneau for the intervener Grand Council of the Crees, Cree Regional Authority. John Donaghy for the intervener Trisho Government. Robert J.M. James, James, pardon me, uh, Carrie M. Brooks for the intervener Timexwa Nations. James W. Cody, James M. Cody. Dave Joe and Darren R. Lease for the Intervenor Council of Yukon First Nations, and Peter W. Hitchens and Julie Corey for the Intervenor Assembly of First Nations. Mr. Armstrong. Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices of the Court. Uh, we have prepared today a condensed book of reference materials. Uh, which you should have uh, before you. There's an outline of argument in that as well. And I believe the court also has copies of the official, the bound version of the final agreement and the uh, self-government agreement at, at issue in the proceedings. I have, uh, Chief Justice, I uh, have elected to reserve 15 minutes of, of my time for reply. The final agreement this final agreement establishes a modern relationship between these parties, the First Nation, Yukon, and Canada. It is modern in every aspect. It is not trust-like. That relationship is not the modern relationship. The First Nation's title to land is recognized and resolved in this agreement. The Crown's title to land is recognized and resolved. The First Nation has self-government. The parties act jointly and with mutual participation in all aspects of land and resource planning, on land use planning, fish and wildlife planning, forestry, natural resources, and environmental assessment. In all of those matters, there are committees or boards established in which the First Nation is guaranteed participation. The agreement sets out its own process for assessment of disposition of Crown land and settlement land. Uh, 
including potential environmental effects and socioeconomic effects and effects on First Nations treaty rights. Was this project uh, subject to the assessment uh, process? Yes, uh, Justice. This project went through the LARC process, as you know, which is a, a, that process, but also was subject to a screening under the Yukon Environmental Assessment Act. I, I mean, under, had the process provided by the uh, final agreement been in place, would this project uh, be subject to it? Yes, Justice, and, and I, will, I, will, I will go through that. The, new, the implementation of Chapter 12, which is the development assessment process, uh, came into force in 2005. So it came in, the decision in this case was made in 2004. In 2005, Chapter 12 was implemented by the Yukon Environmental and Socioeconomic Assessment Act, we call it YESA, and by its regulations. And under that act, uh, where the Yukon government proposes to uh, uh, consider an application for land, which is going to be used for an activity listed in the regulations, those regulations having been developed in collaboration and consultation with the First Nation, that application for land must go through the YESA process. Uh, and, uh, in the compendium, we do have the Act, YESA, and some of the some of the regulations. But virtually all significant activities or developments, including agricultural developments, mining, forestry, etc., are ca are captured by and trigger the YESA process. So that's going forward. In this case, the the application came in 2002 to 2004. The LARC process and the Yukon Environmental Assessment Act, which just to, just to confirm the history, it used to be the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act. It was then transferred to the Yukon Environmental Assessment Act, pretty much the same terms. And then in 2005, YESA came into force. So the, for, the, the, the process under which uh, this uh, application was uh, processed has been replaced by the process that is contemplated by Chapter 12? Yes, yes, Judge. Uh, this agreement contains its own framework for consultation. There's a definition of consultation, which I, will, which I will come to, and an agreement on the circumstances mutually, uh, uh, sorry, the circumstances in which consultation is required. And that consultation goes both ways. In many ways, instances, the First Nation must consult with government before it, for instance, adopts a land use plan and government must consult with the First Nation. It goes both ways, and there's a definition of what it is. The agreement, we say, achieves its multiple purposes. It balances, by agreement, the broad range of rights and processes which recognize and protect the First Nation's interests, and that's one of the stated purposes. And that's balanced with certainty on two counts. Certainty respecting land ownership and use, and certainty respecting the relationship between the parties. Those two are stated purposes. And this agreement, by, by negotiating and signing this agreement, these parties found the means to achieve those purposes. This modern relationship establishes rights, relationships, and processes. It is an instrument of reconciliation. It is reconciliation, and I call it an instrument of reconciliation because there's much work to be done going forward under the agreement. There's much collaboration and work to be done together, 
but it is reconciliation and provides a framework for uh, reconciliation. Um, what if uh, an agreement provides a framework for reconciliation, but it is deemed to be an inadequate one to actually provide reconciliation? Do you say the agreement is still final? Yes, Justice. I, I, we say that the parties themselves have deemed the agreement to be satisfactory in, in balancing the interests. Thank you. As a modern agreement, it's our submission that the imposition of unmodern duties of consultation and accommodation, which are necessary in circumstances where the First Nation relationship has not evolved or progressed to a modern relationship through negotiated reconciliation, are neither needed nor justified nor appropriate. We say that imposing such a duty, as was done by the Court of Appeal, is fundamentally inconsistent with the final agreement. It undermines the terms of the agreement and undermines the modern relationship. I'll come to the differences in context between, between Haida and Miccosuit. In Haida, of course, there was no resolution of rights at all. No title rights, no land use rights, no participation in planning, no consultation agreement. What, how do you see what the Court of Appeal found to be the duty to consult as being inconsistent with what was negotiated? How, how, do you, how would you define the content of what you think they imposed? Yes, Justice. In the, the context of a, of a treaty like this one. Yes, Justice. The, in the consultation accommodation framework established in Haida and then applied uh, in Miccosuit is necessarily very broad, uh, very uncertain, involves a number of, of determinations of both law and, and fact, which, which uh, impose quite a significant uncertainty on the relationship because the underlying relationship is uncertain. So under the consultation accommodation framework of Haida Miccosu, decisions must be made. Number one, does cons is consultation applicable? That's a, a legal decision. Secondly, what is the content of the consultation? Is it mere notice? Is it deep consultation? Is it consent? There's a, as we know, there's a wide spectrum there. Uh, is accommodation required? An accommodation is a substantive requirement. It's partly procedure, but partly substantive. Those, that framework makes sense in the context of a Haida situation where the Crown is, has management of the Crown land, but the First Nations' claims to ownership and use of that land have not yet been resolved. In that context, the Crown, before making Crown land use decisions, is required to consult and seek means of accommodating the current use or the, or the interests of the First Nation. Now, in this case, uh, those issues have been, uh, the, the underlying fundamental issues have been resolved. We've resolved title. It's clear and this, under this agreement there are two types of land, settlement land, which belongs to the First Nation in fee simple. It goes beyond Aboriginal title to a full fee simple title and there's Crown land or the non-settlement land. And then we have the whole uh, range of participatory processes for, for planning and we have a framework for consultation. And Justice, our position is if you then impose on top of that the, the, the non-modern framework of consultation and accommodation you're, you're putting the parties back to the bargaining table again on each 
potential disposition of Crown land. And, and imposing do, do you say that uh, consultation cannot apply to a modern land claims agreement, or does it depend on the terms of the agreement, or what? Yes, uh, Justice, we, we say that uh, the duty to consult, as indicated in Hyda, flows from the honor of the Crown and must be uh, determined in the context of each case. We say in this case there is no need to impose a duty of consultation outside the terms of the agreement. These parties agreed on what consultation was and when it would apply, and they also agreed on processes. If we look at the Mikasu case, one of the issues there was, was there a process for the transfer of land from crown land to, to, to private land? And there wasn't there, but there is here. So there's, we, we say that there is no need to impose a duty outside this agreement, which is said to be the final agreement between the parties. Isn't there the, the, quite, I mean, the agreement defines consultation in very general terms. Yes. It's, it appears at the page, paragraph 83 of uh, the uh, motion's judgment. Uh, so it's notice information, reasonable period of time, uh, full and fair consideration by the party obliged to consult. Yes. So the, the content of the duty is agreed to. So isn't the issue whether it extends beyond the specific instances set out in the agreement, whether you can take from those 50 or 50, however many instances there are a negative inference that the consultation was not to extend anywhere else? Yes, Justice, that is certainly the issue here is in, in this case there's a framework for consultation in the agreement. It's accepted by both parties that in this particular case that, that framework was not triggered. And so the question is what framework should apply? Well, just in terms of the overall scope of consultation, that really doesn't present much problem because they've already agreed if there is a duty of consultation, what that would consist of. Yes, yes. And, uh, I will come to the uh, analysis of the uh, essentially the three frameworks for decision making which are presented in this case. We have the framework. I, I, I'm sorry, but before you go to that, you say that all the parties agreed that the framework for consultation in this case was not triggered. Yes. yes. Because it was not implemented, or because uh, of other reasons. No, the the the. Agreement, the final agreement, does not specify that consultation is required on the transfer of Crown land in, on the circumstances of this case. But you mentioned at the beginning, in answer to one of my questions, that had the process under Chapter 12 been uh, in force, uh, the process would have been triggered? Yes, Justice, but that's, a pro that's not the consultation uh, process that in the agreement there's a definition of consultation and then 60-odd places where the agreement says there must be consultation. The, the process of, of review and assessment of, of, of environmental assessment is a separate process. It is an, it's an administrative decision-making process which is built into the treaty. And that part would apply to this land application if it had come forward later. But it's but, uh, and there is some consultation in that. It, when, once the a project goes through the environmental assessment process, it gets to a point where either the government or the First Nation is making a decision. It's called a decision document. 
So if the government is then to make a decision on the allocation of Crown land, it's required to consult with First Nation before making that decision. If the project was on First Nations land, vice versa, then uh, uh, consultation is required that way. So I, that, uh, what I mean by that is there's no, there, there is a decision-making process which is, which is full and comprehensive in which the First Nation participates, uh, which is implemented under Chapter 12. And could you clarify for me exactly what it is that you say does not apply? You say that any time a situation arises as between the First Nations and the Yukon government, which is not anticipated by the modern, by this modern treaty, there are no residual responsibilities or rights that arise in connection with, for example, a duty to consult? Uh, I mean, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to figure out what it is that you say is left then as a result of the treaty. Yes, Justice. And in, in this case, what, what certainly is always left is the honor of the Crown. The honor of the Crown always prevails. So in the situation where, as here, the, the specific consultation clauses weren't triggered, uh, where do we go with the honor of the Crown? Now, the First Nation says that as this process wasn't triggered, we should go back to a Haida and Mikasu consultation and accommodation framework. In fact, the First Nation argues that no matter, doesn't matter what this treaty says, there's an overriding duty of consultation and accommodation which should be laid over top of the agreement. So that's one of the frameworks. We say that where in this case the consultation process wasn't triggered, the honor of the Crown was met and fulfilled by the process which the Crown did follow by the Yukon government. The Yukon government in this case, uh, as we know, uh, reviewed the application through the LARC process. That's the, it's the predecessor process. They gave notice to the First Nation. They gave the First Nation an opportunity to make submissions, which they did. And, and the decision was then given with reasons, which indicated that the First Nation's concerns were considered. And in fact, the land application was modified to take into account to some extent the that first goes to the question sorry, just want to finish that, that goes to the question on the cross appeal then whether in fact if there was some duty it was met you appear to be conceding then that the honor of the crown in those matters not specifically covered by the treaty do engage the honor of the crown and that that may include a duty to consult but that that is uh, met in this case, is that right? No, Justice, I don't concede that. I, then, we, 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 we say uh, that, uh, of course, the honor of the Crown is always at stake. Uh, in this case, the First Nation says, well, the honor of the Crown gives rise to a duty to consult and accommodate in the Haida Mikasu sense. We say that's not right. We say the honor of the Crown to, to impose that duty on this agreement is fundamentally inconsistent with this agreement. What we say is that the honor of the crown is met by following a, a fair and open administrative process, the one that they followed. So how, what's the content of the honor of the crown then? Not, you, you go from the requirement is met by, but what is the requirement? How would you define honor of the crown differently from the way it's put to you by the First Nations? The honor of well, the crown applies, yes. and therefore... There must be what? 
Well, in this case, the honor, we say the honor of the Crown was met by the administrative process. Notice, opportunity to be heard, and then a decision made in the public interest. It does not entail all of those matters in the Haida Mikasu uh, con- uh, framework of consultation and, and accommodation. And if you see, the, the First Nation, in this case, on the cross appeal, uh, says that in this case, the parties should go back to the negotiating table and negotiate a process for consultation, uh, that they should then negotiate accommodations. And we say that is taking us back into a framework which is not appropriate. The more appropriate framework, and it's the framework actually built into this agreement, is for an administrative process of notice, opportunity to be heard, and and decision-making. It's not consultation and accommodation. That's where I'm just a little lost on this. Uh, Are you saying that the honour of the Crown, as reflected by the LARC process, is over and above the agreement? That is, is, it's external to the agreement, or is that included in the agreement? Was the LARC process mandatory under the agreement? Yes, Justice. The LARC process process is not built into the agreement. The LARC process was in place prior to the agreement and carried through uh, after. And it's a process where there's a committee set up of government and First Nations, and that committee considers land use applications, and that was followed. Mandatory outside the agreement. Is that? Is that it was a policy. It was a. It was a process which was followed outside the agreement. Yes. Well, yes. mandatory or just a just voluntary. It was a policy process. It was. It was not legislated in the sense that it was mandatory. Did that, the government it. have to follow the LARC process as a matter of law or not? No. So this was just a voluntary way of accommodating the honour of the Crown, but it was voluntary? How could that be? Well, the Crown can certainly uh, fulfil its honour in a voluntary way. It doesn't have to be um, uh, in a duty sense. But But that LARC process has been now replaced with a, a similar process where there's participation of the First Nation, notice, opportunities to be, to be heard, et cetera. It's, a, it's an administrative process. So what we say is, is this. There are three frameworks which are presented in this case, three frameworks for consultation or decision-making. One framework which we refer to is the definition of consultation under the Act. So the parties defined what is consultation and and specified when it would apply. And that consultation process, as Justice Binney uh, uh, pointed out, is essentially notice, an opportunity to present views, and then full and fair consideration. And that process works back and forth between the two parties. Now, we know in this case, at the time this application came forward, that that consultation process wasn't triggered. We had not yet implemented Chapter 12. But there was a process in place uh, which the government committed to. They committed to it in the letter of 2004. The government here said, the agreement does not require us to consult in this case, but we have a process of consultation through, the, through, through LARC, and, the, and they followed that. So the question in this case is, where that specific duty to consult in the agreement is not triggered, what framework is appropriate? And we have two here. 
we have the First Nation arguing for the Haida Miccosukee framework. And we say that's the wrong framework, it's the wrong context. The framework which we say you, you go into then is the general administrative law framework. And that's the framework which was followed here. And that framework we say is far more consistent with the agreement itself. If we go back to the Haida Miccosukee framework, we're driving a hole right in the agreement. It's fundamentally inconsistent with the agreement to go back and say, you must now consult and accommodate. It's reimposing a burden on the Crown land which, which, which is not there. This agreement, we say, is, is complete in the sense that it provides for uh, the assurance of rights and it applies for the processes. It, it provides the processes which are satisfactory to, uh, uh, to, to address the, uh, the issues in, in concern. Can I just ask, regarding the appropriateness of the LARC uh, framework, uh, because as you point out, uh, the First Nation concerns were uh, noted, communicated, uh, recorded in the minutes, and then a decision was taken. But I think the complaint uh, raised by the other side is that there is no indication in that decision that their concerns were uh, addressed. They were noted, but not uh, addressed. And therefore, they say consultation, even as contemplated in the agreement for other purposes, you would say, but mm -hmm. establishing that as a suitable uh, content for consultation your own definition wasn't met. And it's not enough simply to say, well, we note the uh, certain concerns raised and our decision is in favor of granting the application. Can you just address that issue? Yes, Justice, and that is certainly in part addressed on the cross-appeal. Um, in this case, uh, if, if we're, we're going into the, the, the mode of, of applying the Haida Miccosukee consultation accommodation. In this case, the Court of Appeal found that this would, the consultation required was at the lower end of the spectrum. There's very little use of this land. There's some use of it for commercial purposes, but the agreement provides for, for compensation for any impact on commercial trapping. There's very little evidence, if any, of subsistence harvesting here. Yeah, no, no, I'm just, I'm not getting into the cross-appeal. I'm just pick, picking you up on your statement that the LARC process yes. uh, satisfied uh, all, re all requirements. Yes. And uh, so I'm under the, the appeal part, and I'm just uh, mm -hmm. saying that there seems to be a, a, an issue as to whether the concerns were addressed by LARC. Yes. Uh, if I go back to the, the issue of which, which framework we ought to apply if, there, if the consultation framework doesn't, the LARC process has all of the elements in it of the consultation framework in the agreement. It, there certainly was notice. We know that there was notice given to the First Nation and, 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 and further notice of the fact that there was a meeting coming up. The First Nation did uh, make submissions. Uh, Mr. Sam asked the First Nation to make submissions on his behalf. They, and the letter which they sent in is in my uh, com, uh, condensed book. Uh, and there are minutes of the meeting of LARC. Um, and the First Nation did not attend the meeting of, of LARC. The, just dealing with the elements then, the, all of the elements are there 
in the LARC process as a general administrative decision-making process of the general terms being notice, opportunity to be heard, and reasonable consideration. Those are all there. One party might argue that, well, as parties often do when the decision comes out, well, you didn't really hear me because I don't like your decision. Um, but the elements are there. Uh, and, and that framework, the administrative law framework, we say is consistent with the reconciliation here, consistent with the agreement. And, and if, you, if we set that up as this is the framework of followed by the, the framework followed by the government uh, as the appropriate framework versus going back to Haida and Mikasu into situations where there is either no treaty at all or an unfinished treaty, we say we're going back into uh, pre-treaty uh, context and we're undermining the, the, the agreement reached here. Because re remember here, the First Nation argues that the Haida Mikasu uh, framework should apply, it should overlay this agreement. And if that is the case, uh, this agreement is frustrated. These parties come to the table here and parties are encouraged across Canada to enter into negotiated uh, reconciliation. Uh, and if they're told that at the end of that, the consultation accommodation mechanisms applicable in non-treaty or historic treaty circumstances still apply, well, they've lost the certainty. The, the agreement's no longer respected. We're now dealing with uh, a whole different paradigm of relations between the First Nation and the, and the Crown. What's the difference between... Okay. Would you agree then that if your approach is accepted and you're under the admin law approach that the uh, First Nation could come forward and say, well, even under admin law you failed to take account of relevant considerations because we can't see that in your decision that you took account of the concerns that we raised or that your decision is unreasonable either way. They could, they, they, they could approach it that way. Certainly, certainly, Justice, they, they could. Um, it, when, when we're into government decision-making processes, the general uh, requirements of administrative fairness and uh, administrative law do apply. There's judicial review available. Uh, and we say that that's a type of, that, that's, that's reconciliation in operation here. When, when, if I could just uh, address the issue of what we mean by reconciliation here, because there's some notion in the First Nations materials which says that there's the First Nations interests and then Yukon government has its own interests, acting in its own interests is the words it uses. There's no such thing as the Yukon government's own interest. The Yukon government acts in the interests of the community as a whole including the First Nation. And if I could uh, refer you to the, uh, the passage in, in Delgamook, which is at tab, uh, which is at tab six of uh, my condensed book. In this passage, the court, we say, characterizes what we mean by reconciliation. We, some, we talk about reconciliation between the First Nation and the sovereignty of the crown, and that sometimes invokes that old crown, the crown, the crown sovereign. That's not a modern version of the crown. The crown now in that context should be read as the community as a whole. And, and this passage, so it's at page 20, uh, tab 6 at page 21 at the top, and it's paragraph 161. And 
I just want to quote from the, the last paragraph in the quoted paragraph from Gladstone, which says, because distinctive Aboriginal societies exist within and are a part of a broader social, political, and economic community over which the Crown is sovereign, there are circumstances in which, in order to pursue objectives of compelling and substantial importance to that community as a whole, taking into account the fact that Aboriginal societies are a part of that community, some limitation of those rights will be justifiable. And it, it goes on and to say that those limits uh, are equally a necessary part of that reconciliation. So here, what we're rec what's, what's reconciled here is, in this agreement, a whole framework which is, which is, uh, which is designed to protect the interests of the First Nation. And then we move into a framework where in the, the interests of the community as a whole are at stake. And here, one of the thing, one of the, one of the key uh, issues which the Crown comes to in negotiating a treaty is to secure the ability to deal with Crown land in the public interest. In areas of the country where there are no treaties, the Crown's ability to manage Crown lands in the public interest is limited by the need to consult and accommodate with First Nations because the First Nations continue, their, their, their claims remain outstanding with respect to title and rights. And when the Crown comes to the table under a modern agreement like this, they're looking to do two things. One, meet the requirements of securing the interests of the First Nation. Secondly, finding that place where we reconcile those interests with the interests of the broader community. And that brings me back to the administrative law process uh, in place here. There are a number of requirements in this agreement which limit the ability to dispose of land or require consultation. When we get to a, a circumstance where it's outside the terms of that agreement, now the Crown is acting in the general public interest. Now the Crown is following administrative processes which, in, which provide for notice, opportunities to be heard, and consideration. And that is part of reconciliation. Now we're moving towards that. There is, there is that side of reconciliation which is important, and that is the public community side. Having taken care of the First Nations interest, we go to the public uh, community side. The, um, if we look at that, there's a spectrum of reconciliation within the agreement. The one end of the spectrum is absolutely clear, title is clear. The First Nations have secured title in fee simple to their lands and the Crown has secured title to its lands. In the middle we have detailed and extensive processes under which these parties work together on land use and resource planning, etc. And we also have a framework for, uh, for consultation in specified circumstances. And, and we say certainly it's inconsistent to say, well, where, uh, to say either one of two things, where the consultation is not specified well, let's go back to the old pre-treaty notion of, of consultation and accommodation. Or, uh, even, even more uh, uh, ambitious is the First Nations say, well, uh, that, that uh, framework of consultation and accommodation continues to apply even though we have signed this agreement. 
And we say that, would un that not only undermines this agreement, but would under undermine the process of reconciliation in which parties come to the table and they're encouraged, governments are encouraged to come to their table. What, to the table. What, what, uh, can you just help me with this? Uh, supposing you're right that there's a general admin law duty, well, why doesn't that fit under the Haida Mikasu uh, paradigm? I mean, it's it's a form of consultation. I mean, you're listening to the party, and uh, and if you decide that they're that they've got a point, you accommodate. Why do you draw the distinction? It it can fit under that. There's a there's a spectrum in the the. The Haida-Mikasu framework is a spectrum, can go from mere notice to consent. Um, and in that, and it's recognized in, in, in the Haida decision, that, that the principles of administrative fairness fit within that spectrum. So they're, they're notice plus opportunity plus consideration. Um, so yes, one approach is to say, uh, yes, the uh, framework of consultation and accommodation applies here, and then in each case we will determine what the content of the, of the duty is. And, and that is what we are opposed to, because that creates enormous uncertainty. In this case, for instance, the trial judge uh, said, yes, it applies, and in that trial judge's determination, deep consultation was required. If that framework applies, these parties will be in court, like parties are in, in, in areas where there are no treaties, uh, and there will be litigation over whether the consultation applies, what's the appropriate level of the consultation, is accommodation required. It's all under court supervision. But you said yourself that there was an ongoing, overriding, honor of the crown duty, period. Doesn't that, where you've got situations that aren't covered by the treaty necessarily mean that you are dealing with case-by-case -case assessments of whether or not the honor of the Crown has been met where it's not covered by the treaty? No, Justice. We say that in, 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 in this case, the honor of the Crown is met by following a, an open and fair administrative decision-making process. So isn't it a question of label? You call it an administrative law process. Uh, other parties preferred to call it, uh, or the Court of Appeal preferred to call it a duty to consult uh, uh, owed to the honor of the Crown out of uh, Mikusu, uh framework, which didn't involve a large uh, and deep consultation. So isn't it really a question of label? No, Justice, it's not a question of label. It's a question of the framework. And the framework the Court of Appeal came to was they said the Haida and Mikasu framework applies. And now we have to determine whether it's mere notice or consent or accommodation. And that whole framework was designed for circumstances where there was no treaty or an unfinished treaty. It is not fair or appropriate. Uh, it, is, it is inconsistent with this treaty to say that uh, that that framework, that broad framework will continue to apply and will determine in the, in the context of each case, of each decision, what the content of the duty is, what's the appropriate accommodation. But uh, can we say, even uh, assuming, assuming that the proper framework to determine the nature of the relationship between the first, uh, the first uh, nations and the Yukon government is this uh, 
is this uh, agreement, uh, even if we assume uh, this, does that mean that there is no room uh, for the uh, application of values flowing from the honor of the Crown to the interpretation and application of the agreement itself? Let's say that the honor of the Crown would find its place within, I think, the structure of this, uh, of this agreement, of the mutual yeah. promises that were made there. Yes, and our, our position, uh, Justice, we say, is consistent with, with that approach, that, that uh, following this decision-making process uh, is respectful of the, of the structure of the, of the agreement, and to the contrary, to, uh, to begin with a, or to, to impose over this agreement that other, that Haida Mikasu framework is, is inconsistent with, with the agreement. It's not, uh, e even here, the, the parties would be surprised to know that they had, they had defined consultation here, that they had listed the cir circumstances in which it applies, and that in a circumstance where it doesn't clearly apply, you bounce right back to a Haida Mikasu kind of consultation accommodation approach. What's that the role? doesn't seem Sorry. consistent. Sorry, Justice. Go ahead. Finish, please. Sorry, Justice. I'm finished. What's the role of Section 35 in your analysis of the, of the Charter? Uh, Section this is a this is a land claim settlement under Section 35. Uh, these are treaty rights under Section 35. In terms of interpreting uh, what the relationship between the parties is notwithstanding the existence of agreement. Is there any work left for Section 35? Uh, yes, certainly Section 35 is a foundation, is one of the foundations for the honor of the Crown. Uh, uh, and, and what we need to do here, once the parties have defined the structure of their relationship, uh, to look at any uh, duties of the Crown uh, in the context of that relationship. And, and so uh, I think Section 35 simply talks about recognition of, of, of First Nations rights. They're, they're recognized here in this agreement. And the parties, this is the preferred method, as we know, of reconciling the balancing of interests. So these parties have, these parties, when I say this is a modern agreement, this came out of modern negotiations. Uh, and it came after Section 35, which is different than Mikasu, of course. Uh, the the Mikasu people did not come to the table with the support of Section 35. The First Nation here did. Uh, and they have framed their agreement here, their relationship, their processes. And, and the contention of the First Nation that uh, we should go back to adopt, they, they, they talk about a trust-like relationship, they talk about consultation and accommodation in the Mikasu uh, Haida sense, we say that simply is not, we've moved beyond that. We've modernized the relationship, uh, and if we're looking for uh, uh, obligations here, they must be looked at within the context of the agreement. Now, the, the LARC process here um, uh, was the process in place, but it's now Chapter 12 uh, is the development assessment process. And that process is, like many other processes in, in, in other jurisdictions, one of the triggers, and it's in the, um, in, in the uh, YESA uh, uh, legislation, which is, which is at tab 5 of the, 
of our compendium. But the, the, the legislation there says, for instance, and it's, this legislation is specifically stated to implement Chapter 12 of the Umbrella Final Agreement. That's, that's uh, tab 5 at paragraph page 11 at the top. And you'll see section 5 says, this act gives effect to provisions of the Umbrella Final Agreement respecting environmental and socioeconomic effects. And the purposes are to provide a comprehensive, neutrally conducted assessment process applicable in Yukon, and in B, to require before projects are undertaken, their environmental and socioeconomic effects are considered. And D, pr protect and promote the well-being of uh, Yukon First Nations, etc. If you look over at um, uh, page 15, uh, section 47 says proposed activity is subject to assessment. And so 47 uh, sub 2 uh, says an activity listed under paragraph 1A, so that's under, in the regulations, is subject to assessment if it's proposed in the Yukon and if. And if you go to B, it says a territorial agency, municipal government, uh, in the territorial regulatory agency or First Nation is the proponent uh, and an authorization uh, or, or, or the grant of an interest in land would be required. So we go through that process. This process is not consultation and accommodation. This is an administrative process where parties bring forward their interests. They're presented to the Yukon Environmental and Socioeconomic Assessment Board and decisions are made. And this is the administrative process which is mandated by these parties in this agreement. And the First Nation certainly participates in this process, and, and we'll recall that in LARC, they had membership on the LARC uh, committee as well, and membership here. What the First Nation is saying is, take LARC, or if we, if we scan forward and take this process here, let's add another duty on top of this. Let's say the Crown is also still required to consult and accommodate with First Nations as if this agreement didn't exist. Could I clarify one thing? If I understand you uh, correctly, uh, your position is that in the context of a modern agreement, uh, a comprehensive one such as this, the honor of the Crown will have been met by fulfilling the terms of the agreement. Yes. And uh, if we have something that falls outside of the agreement by fulfilling its administrative law duties. Yes. In that context of fulfilling its administrative law duties, uh, do you see... Uh, uh, a special duty or an additional duty because of the fact that the person involved is a First Nations, the, the, the component of the public that the Crown is dealing with at this point is a First Nations. Does that make it any different? Or? Yes, it does, but we are, in, we are in the realm of reconciliation here now. We have, there, there's, a, there's a, a, a tremendous level of detail in the agreement to secure and protect the interests of the First Nations. Now we're dealing with Crown land. It's been released from claims. Uh, there's a limited right to use that Crown land when it's not allocated. It's like in Badger or in the Mikasu case. And we know that when the Crown transfers that land from Badger and Mikasu, that it's not a breach of the agreement. Uh, but certainly when the transfer is made, uh, interests can be affected because the First Nation may be using that tract of land which is now to be transferred. In this process, certainly um, notice is given to the First Nation 
consideration of the First Nations interests is taken into account. And the Crown, and this is, this is part of reconciliation in the public interest, uh, that uh, the, the, the Crown or government now is weighing the general public interest and certainly um, uh, is required to give consideration to the First Nations rights and interests and balance those against others. So it's, it's, it's to be seriously considered, but if we go to uh, a Haida context, in that case, the Crown now is about to dispose of some land, which the Haida people say belongs to us. That's our land, you're managing it, and you cannot dispose of that unless you accommodate our interests. So we're using that land for uh, subsistence harvesting or, or, or other purposes. You must accommodate us uh, you must not dispose of that land in a way which undermines our ability to claim our title in the end. That's a far more powerful requirement, and it's an appropriate requirement in that context because the Haida say they own the land and the Crown's title has not yet been, been freed. So, yes, Justice, it's the, the taken certainly uh, must be given, uh, e even in the terms of the of consultation required under the agreement, um, full and fair consideration. They're important interests. Uh, they're important rights. But in, in this case, we have, for instance, just to, to, to bring it to the ground, we have a gentleman who wishes to use the land for farming. We have a member of the First Nation who has a trap line in the area. And the government has to look at the, the, those two issues and determine, well, what is, what's generally in the, in the interest of the broader community here? Now? That's part of reconciliation. The government having secured the agreement, secured the rights of the First Nation, is now in, able to uh, uh, address Crown land in the general public interest, certainly uh, uh, taking into account the potential uh, interests of the First Nation. And that... Which means that perhaps that if, if, he, if the government has to take into consideration the interests uh, of uh, the First Nations of the, or of their members, that it must have it must have in place or in, in practice use some process yes. w uh, which allow the First Nations or their or their members to raise their con concerns and to be consulted in some way about the impact and outcome of the process yes justice and in this case in and the uh, I add also and I uh, this brings us back uh, to uh, a, qu a question that Justice Rothstein put to you. Is this in, at any rate under general principles of administrative law, would, would not this be a requirement because before the government may reach any decision on the disposition of Crown land in such uh, circumstances? Yes. Uh, uh, and, uh, Justice, in, in this case, the, the process is prescribed by the agreement and implemented by the legislation. And we had, in, the, in this case, a process uh, which followed from uh, a previous process, pre previous to the agreement, which operated but still had, still had in it uh, the, uh, the elements, uh, uh, not in such, detailed, uh, uh, in not in such a detailed way, but the elements of the administrative decision-making process. So whereas in Mikasu, for instance, um, the parties to that agreement, uh, obviously negotiating it more than 100 
110 years ago, now I guess this year, um, uh, they didn't have Section 35. Our Constitution did not uh, provide that foundation. The parties in this case had that foundation. Um, and unlike in Mikasu where there was no process in the, in the agreement uh, and the agreement was, uh, uh, was unfinished, uh, this agreement is finished. This agreement provides a process. And what we have here is the First Nations saying, well, we want another overriding and different process than the one we agreed to. There's no argument here that this is an implied term of the agreement. We know that. We have no argument that there's a breach. Perhaps one of the difficulties here is that you're saying since uh, 2005, we have an assessment uh, process in place. But here we're in 2003, 2004, in a kind of transition interim uh, period. And one of the qu questions uh, then is, well, what about uh, the process of consulting, uh, taking into account uh, the, uh, the, the interests of rights that, may, that are recognized in this uh, framework agree agreement. Yes, Justice, and the government did that. The government in its letter, which is in our uh, condensed book at tab uh, 7, I believe, that's the letter of 2004, uh, uh, and this is the letter to uh, the chief of the Little Salmon Carmex First Nation. And, and in this letter, the, the government says, well, the, the final agreement doesn't doesn't trigger a consultation process. Now, this is in 2004, but nevertheless, the government uh, does consult with the community and the First Nations uh, in particular. In the case of dispositions of Crown land in the traditional territory, uh, uh, the Yukon, in the last paragraph on page, uh, the first page of the letter, the Yukon government consults with First Nations regarding dispositions because it is good practice when conducting public business. Now, that good practice was in place and, and, uh, and, and we say satisfied the requirements and was, uh, and was con in fact consistent with the, uh, with the consultation requirements uh, in the agreement and that practice has now been legislated in but, under Chapter But 12. you say that even back in, 19, in 2004, what the Yukon government said was good practice was really mandatory under admin law principles. Essentially, yes. Well, in fact, it doesn't become an issue here, Justice, because they did follow the practice. If they hadn't followed this practice here, if they hadn't given notice, if they hadn't had an opportunity, could administrative law remedies have been raised? Um, certainly. Um, but they did follow, they promised to follow a process, and they did follow a process here. Um, and, and, and the process, if there are, if, Really, this, the, the, the application in this case the, 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 of the First Nation was uh, brought seeking a declaration that a duty to consult and accommodate uh, applies uh, over and above the terms of this treaty. In fact, the duty to consult and accommodate in the application didn't reference the treaty. It, it's a standalone duty, says the First Nation, and it's, it sits over top of this agreement. If that duty, that when I say it's inconsistent with the agreement, one of the factors that, that should be considered is how that kind of duty, in fact, undermines the processes in the agreement. 
because what can happen uh, is that the process is mandated under Chapter 12 for determination of, of land use decisions uh, proceed along that track, and the First Nation says, but there's another track you've got to be on. You may satisfy the terms of the, of the agreement, but there's another track you have to be on. You have to come and consult and accommodate with us under the, this other framework as well. What it means is even the, even the agreed-upon framework doesn't work effectively if the parties don't see that framework as the, the one that counts. But, but see, I think this is the conceptual uh, problem here. Uh, you know, we agree that there's, there's nothing in Section 35 that draws a distinction between historical treaty and modern treaties. In fact, they're defined, the, the latter is defined as coming within the former. So uh, the, uh, the judgments in Haida and uh, 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 Mikishu and so on uh, are still there as uh, related to treaties generally. So then the question is not whether this is a modern treaty or not, but whether there is within the treaty, whenever negotiated, uh, an adequate uh, process, that is to say adequate to discharge this uh, uh, consultation duty. So it's not really a double track or a, a duty overhanging uh, what has been agreed to between the parties. Isn't the question simply whether what the parties have negotiated uh, is uh, an adequate substitute for uh, what the work done by the, historically, by the duty to consult. And what you're saying is that the uh, First Nations, uh, having negotiated this in the way they did and with the resources they had, should be taken as having agreed that it was an adequate substitute. Yes, Justice, that, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, we, we say that uh, that. Uh, the parties carefully negotiated this agreement and uh, uh, and effectively deemed it to be adequate when they uh, shook hands at the table and when they when they ratified it. No, but I think, are, so I mean, well, I, I just think, I think the point is 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 not that uh, it's somehow excluded, uh, it, but that the the argument is whether or not this satisfies whether the administrative law remedies which we've been talking about yeah. satisfies this obligation of the crown, but it doesn't extinguish the obligation of the Crown. It's still there, but has it been satisfied is the question. Yes, Justice. We, we recognize that there are different ways of, of, of coming at the question. It might be, we might come at the question from, from the perspective that the duty to consult and accommodate is, is always, um, is uh, an overarching duty uh, and always applicable, and the question is whether this agreement then uh, meets that requirement. Uh, we, we resist that approach because, um, because of the concern, the uncertainty concern that we have that uh, judges uh, would then potentially feel free uh, to assess the, the, the degree of consultation or the, the level of accommodation required in each particular instance, which we say would, would not be consistent with, with this agreement. We, we say when it comes down to these land use decisions by the Crown, uh, we're beyond that uh, issue of the kind of accommodation 
uh, required in a Haida or a, or a Miccosu case. Well, is that correct? Because as we looked before, the, the, the way in which consultation is defined in the agreement seems entirely consistent with the uh, Haida Miccosu uh, uh, line of cases. So the content is not an issue. What is an issue is whether you go beyond the instances specified in the agreement where consultation is required right. and whether the court uh, is satisfied that the Crown's ob general duty is satisfied if these other instances are excluded right. by negative inferences yeah. you mentioned earlier. Yes. One of the things in the definition which the word accommodation doesn't appear in the consultation, so it's this consultation without the accommodation part of it. Uh, uh, and that's ex uh, Certainly acknowledged by the uh, by the First Nations. So in in this case, uh, we, where the specific consultation requirements don't 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 trigger, but the government, through its own processes, is uh, has all of those elements in the in the um, in in its decision making process. That should be satisfactory. That's consistent with the agreement. We shouldn't go back uh, as as the First Nation is arguing and saying no no no. There's a there's deep consultation required here and accommodation required here. The uh, just a, a couple of points in, in closing. Uh, the Court of Appeal, we say, uh, and, and Justice Benes goes, goes back to the issue of distinguishing between historic and modern treaties. The, the Court of Appeal said Section 35 doesn't allow uh, for those distinctions. We say certainly the, the, the context, the, 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 the provisions of agreements clearly have to be looked at. I don't think that's, that's uh, likely an issue. But the Court of Appeal seemed to feel that they weren't really able to look at the context of the agreement and, and compare that with the very rudimentary provisions in, in for instance, the, the, the Miccosu Agreement. So we say that is too narrow of a, of a, of a view of Section 35 and its application to, to modern treaties. Um, we also say that the, that the uh, Court of Appeal erred uh, in, in finding that the transfer of Crown land was something which was happening outside the terms of the treaty. The, treaty, the agreement clearly contemplates transfers of Crown land under Section 6.2.3. In Section 11, it contemplates transfers of Crown land by the First Nation and the, and the government and says, if you're going to transfer land, you need to do it in accordance with land use plans, if there were land use plans in existence. Transfers are clearly there. The right to transfer land, fee simple ownership entails the right to transfer land. And so we say that the, the, the Court of Appeal was wrong in saying, well, the, the, the issuance of transferring land is, is done outside the treaty, so it's not captured by the framework. We say that's entirely wrong. Um, it is captured by the framework. Um, and I'll just, uh, uh, just conclude, uh, as, I, as I'm out of time, I recognize. Uh, we say that this agreement is a major achievement in reconciliation that the parties can be proud of. It seeks the reconciliation encouraged by the court and achieves its purposes. It finds the balance. It's the kind of balance which the courts can't resolve on a case-by-case -case basis. Only the parties can sit down and negotiate carefully to balance the interests of the First Nation 
and the interests of the community as a whole, including the First Nation. And, and we say here that acceptance of our position uh, would not constitute a victory for the government, and nor would it constitute a loss for the First Nation if our position is accepted. It would simply and, and merely be an affirmation that the parties here have found the balance between their interests and that the government in this case, in making the particular decision, uh, acted in accordance with the agreement and that there is no need or justification to impose uh, different duties on the government from different pre-treaty contexts. Thank you. Thank you, Justice. Mr. Taylor. Chief Justice, Justices, we have a factum and book of authorities that I won't need to take you to. I don't have uh, a condensed book and don't need one. The Attorney General of Canada's submissions are as to a principled approach that we say will assist in answering the question that's an issue before you, that is the interplay, if any, between the duty to consult and land claims agreements that are sometimes called modern agreements. Canada is, of course, a party to the agreement that is in issue here. I've got five points that I wish to place before you. The first point is this. The Federal Crown agrees that conceptually the duty to consult can coexist alongside a modern treaty. But in any given case, one must first look to the treaty and the terms therein and analyze them in light of the proposed Crown activity or the decision that is an issue. And that should be done in order to see how the parties to the treaty have addressed the protection and reconciliation of treaty rights with other societal needs and interests and the assertion of Crown sovereignty. And we say that is important because those are the objectives of Section 35 and treaty making. And one must also look to see whether those processes and their implementation are means that uphold the honor of the Crown and fulfills the honor of the Crown in its dealings with the Aboriginal people and to see how the parties have protected and balanced their respective rights and interests through the treaty content and the implementation thereof. It's also important in our submission that uh, one look at the entire treaty and not uh, parse out uh, little bits and pick at them. It's not necessary in every instance or for every time that the Crown proposes some activity or a decision that is to be made that transactional consultation occur. The First Nation that has become a party to the treaty and the Crown can agree in advance how to govern their relationship and their respective rights and obligations. It would only be in our submission where the treaty is found to be insufficient in its terms that the court would need to consider whether other steps by government are necessary. It is the case in our view that to take the respondent's position and the notion that the duty to consult applies at all times in relation to all Crown activities that may adversely impact or affect Aboriginal rights or interests would leave little room for other means of protection and reconciliation 
and would not be giving full effect to a treaty that covers off these sorts of objectives. The respondent's approach as well does not reflect the balance and compromise that's inherent in treaty making. We say that the analysis that Canada proposes and puts forth in the factum before you, that is, to give a role to both treaties and a promise of Section 35 and the core principles of the honour of the Crown is one that should be uh, given effect to. To infuse a duty to consult into all treaties and all circumstances as the Chamber's judge did and as the respondents urge upon you would disregard the role that treaties play. The Crown Aboriginal relationship is an ongoing one. Reconciliation is a process that is advanced and fulfilled by treaties and what is properly needed in our view is an approach that balances the role of both treaties and that of consultation which we have placed before you. Can, can I just ask you a, a, a point? You say that there is this ongoing uh, relationship and in this, in this case, as I understand it, the First Nation is saying uh, there's a problem here in picking off application by application. We're concerned about the cumulative effect of uh, timber licenses and agricultural land uh, and that this is not an issue which is identified in the agreement uh, in the treaty for consultation. Would that kind of more general issue, in your view, be a candidate for the duty of consultation apart from the treaty provisions themselves? Well, my first point is that one would have to go to the treaty and see whether um, it leads or doesn't lead to where uh, Justice Binney proposes, which takes me to my second point, and that is in this particular case, the parties have chosen to replace individualized consultation or over harvesting issues on a transactional by transaction basis with broader provisions. And it is those broader provisions that we set out some of at paragraphs 29 to 35 or 4 of our factum that <coughs> deal with and meet the sort of concern that, uh, you're, you're, that uh, Justice Benny is um, raising. So, again, conceptually the two can apply together, but you have to go to the particular treaty, and this particular treaty pertaining to the instances or the circumstances that are an issue, the treaty covers things off in our submission. And the court, in our respectful submission, should defer to those processes that the parties have developed. That's my second point, uh, that this treaty deals with it. My third point is that the respondents put against the federal crown that the approach we put forward is theoretical and not practical. They say that there's no evidence that the requirements and objectives of Section 35 uh, and what underlines the aims of uh, that section were met in this case in actual fact. Uh, we say in answer to that that this court can decide and adjudicate the issues before you and adjudicate on the principled approach that we put forward without having to drill down into what in fact was happening on the ground. Our point is that uh, it is key to analyze and assess the treaty 
and determine whether the described clauses in the treaty as a whole are sufficient to meet the objectives of Section 35, protection of treaty rights and reconciliation. And as I say, the terms in this treaty are, submission, are, are sufficient. My fourth point. Do you, do you agree with Mr. Armstrong that uh, uh, the honor of the crown, which is always present, is, is met by the normal admin law process that would hear the Aboriginal interests and, uh, and consider them and uh, weigh them against the public interest and so forth? I, I was interested in that uh, discussion as it was unfolding in the last hour or so. Um, it, it, it seems that um, that fits with the principled approach or argument that we're putting forward. Um, at the same time, it would seem that there's a certain element of acceptance inherent in that administrative law uh, fulfilling the honor of the Crown that there is a need for something outside the treaty. But we say in this particular case with this treaty that there isn't such a need. Um, that the broader processes, the land use planning processes, the resource harvesting processes fulfill what needs to be fulfilled in order to satisfy the objectives of Section 35 and uphold the honour of the Crown. The way we see it is that treaty making and consultation are two tools or two means of achieving uh, the objectives and meeting the objectives of Section 35 and you don't have to have both where the treaty itself has met uh, what is aimed for by Section 35. In my one minute remaining, um, I want to deal with my fourth and fifth point. My fourth point is that the Assembly of First Nations has been given leave to intervene late. Uh, they have in the order that uh, we all have that they shall not raise new issues. In our submission, there is a new issue in their factum and shortly stated they put against us that as a matter of constitutional law, the federal crown has to be an active participant in all consultations, even those in areas of provincial or territorial jurisdiction. That's not the law and should not be the law and doesn't fit with Haida Taku or Mikasu in our submission. And that issue raised by the AFN is one on an incomplete record that should not be decided here in my submission. Uh, carried to its extreme, it would mean that Canada would have to get involved and intervene in all sorts of provincial and territorial affairs that, uh, for example, go to developing consultation guidelines and so forth that we shouldn't. My final and fifth point is there's no need here to decide the legal characterization of the duty to consult. A number of parties put that against us. Uh, there's no constitutional remedy sought here. It's administrative law and there is no need and this court should not pronounce on the characterization of the legal nature. I realize that there's a statement in paragraph 6 of CAP uh, which I submit is in dicta not after full analysis and it doesn't need to come up here in my submission. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Maître Melançon. Maître Melançon. Madame la juge en chef, Mesdames et Messieurs les juges, 
Euh, la procureure générale du Québec euh, intervient quant à la question soulevée dans l'appel principal. Intervenant dans cette matière et believes que, given the historical context and uh, the provisions of the agreement, that the honor of the Crown is fully preserved by the respect of the various obligations uh, under that treaty. The honor of the Crown does not uh, mean there is a duty to consult that should uh, apply in addition to what has been agreed by the parties. Therefore, the question is what is necessary to preserve the honor of the Crown and meet uh, the goal of uh, reconciliation. Now, the Court has been asked to examine how the honor of the Crown uh, could be interpreted in uh, this context. The Attorney General of Quebec uh, is proposing a similar approach, in other words, to begin by analyzing the historical context of the treaty and then analyzing all of the provisions of the final agreement. The uh, purpose of the uh, exercise being to determine the interest of the different parties. Considering uh, previous decisions, and of course you have uh, this information in uh, tab six and seven of our condensed book. I should remind you that the treaty in, in the Mikasu ruling was uh, a treaty that did not include any uh, procedural uh, duty that would have allowed uh, the parties to consider uh, the rights of the Aboriginal peoples. Now, Justice Binney found, after an analysis of the historical context and the provisions of the treaty, that both the historical context and the underlying tensions uh, un uh, require a process whereby uh, land can be transferred from one category to the next. That's paragraph 33 of the decision. In this case, it is our submission that an analysis of the historical context of the final agreement and the provisions of the agreement as a whole leads to a different conclusion. Here, as my colleague has pointed out, the parties paid particular attention to the actual process. The treaty contains uh, a significant number of mechanisms for consultation, mechanisms for participating in the decision-making, uh, co-management, and even consent, and strategic planning. So uh, the procedural duties, uh, in some respects, are even more consistent, uh, more uh, even more important uh, than they might have been in, in other rulings. Now, the idea of the negotiation is to make choices, both procedurally and substantially. Uh, the mutual concessions were made by the parties in order to establish a new relationship uh, based on mutual interests. Now, in this case, the parties did not include a process, a specific process of consultation, uh, consultation with respect to land. Now, it seems to us that the approach uh, of the respondents uh, in this case invites the court to consider in an isolated manner every government action that could have an impact on treaty rights, to consider them in an isolated manner and to apply uh, automatically apply to them a duty to consult or a duty of accommodation without considering the actual provisions of the treaty. We believe that that approach, approach should not be retained 
because it would have a negative impact. As I already said, it deprives the party of uh, predictability. The predictability was sought, that was sought through the reaching of the agreement. Secondly, it uh, uh, trivializes the agreement and the provisions of the agreement by bringing in uh, additional duties that coexist and that are undefined or could be defined by the courts. Now this uh, trivialization, trivialization leads to more uh, fragility in that it calls into doubt the ability of the parties to agree on mechanisms whereby each would participate and to determine when consultation is desirable and when that consultation is not desirable. And in our condensed book, uh, in, uh, at tabs 9 and 10, we have extracts from the James Bay Convention Agreement, an agreement which, as you know, was the first uh, modern treaty to be reached. And Chapter 22 puts in place a specific regime for assessing environmental impacts, environmental and social impacts. Now, at the time of the treaty, the parties agreed to an appendix where certain issues would automatically be subject to that process, and an additional appendix where other subjects are automatically excluded from that process. And I think that the approach advocated by the respondents calls into doubt the ability of the government to engage in that fine-tuning expertise or process. And finally, we believe that this approach invites the Aboriginal parties to call on the courts to look at deficiencies a posteriori. So here, the honor of the crown means that uh, uh, the results of the negotiation must uh, uh, be the most important component. Now, there are a number of rulings uh, that are listed in our condensed book. And uh, in some of these, uh, the court encourages the parties uh, to uh, negotiate in order to meet the objectives of Section 35. And we believe that is imperiled by the imposition of a duty that is superimposed on the parties that have already reached an agreement. Our approach does not mean, as some factums have suggested, that the relationship between the government and uh, the, the Aboriginal peoples are set in stone or limited to the simple terms of the treaty. Indeed, the new realities, whether it's economic or environmental or even in terms of uh, legal developments, could uh, prompt the parties to consider amendments to the treaties. The factum of the intervener uh, does illustrate that reality in the context of the James Bay Agreement. Now, since it was uh, reached in 1975, it has been modified uh, 20 or more times, including to incorporate new uh, mechanisms whereby there can be co-management and consultation. So, it's up to the parties... Uh, it's the parties that are in the best position to uh, re react to these new realities as they come about. And in concluding, I would like to say that the government of Quebec is currently engaged in a certain number of negotiations with a view to reaching treaties with a number of Aboriginal communities. I'm not uh, revealing any secrets when I say that the provisions uh, 
which are the subject of consultation, uh, particularly since a number of rulings of this court came about, are at the heart of these negotiations, and they are major negotiations. In the eyes of all the parties, these provisions with respect to consult consultation and strategic planning are just as important as those that deal with uh, Aboriginal rights uh, or uh, self-government. The Attorney General of Quebec believes that the parties must remain able to specify their specific duties in that regard and therefore to agree uh, through the kind of provisions we see in this treaty on mechanisms for appropriate consultation and participation in the decision-making process. The courts, of course, retain the power to uh, uh, monitor what is done by the parties uh, through uh, negotiations or through the implementation of treaty provisions. But when the parties, which is the case here, are fully respectful of the treaty in such a, a lengthy agreement as this, we believe that they should be invited, uh, they should not be, have additional uh, duties imposed on them. That uh, concludes my arguments. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, I'm appearing today on behalf of the Attorney General of Newfoundland and Labrador. And um, as a number of people in the room may be aware, the uh, province of Newfoundland and Labrador in 2005 concluded an agreement with the Inuit of Labrador. It was the result of a lengthy negotiation process and is what I guess has come to be termed a modern comprehensive land claims agreement, which amongst other things defines consultation and when it will occur. The more recent backdrop to the province's intervention is that the province is currently involved in another negotiation with the Innu of Southern Labrador and uh, as a precursor to that agreement has recently filed its new Dawn Agreement which is a precursor to an agreement in principle. So this is an issue that obviously will impact uh, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in its negotiations that it has concluded and the negotiations that it's currently working on. The province has intervened on the side of the Yukon in this matter, and uh, obviously then that means that the province, amongst other things, supports the submissions that have been made by my colleagues with the Yukon, and uh, their submissions in respect to the Little Salmon Carmax Agreement. Our brief speaks to that issue, but what I'd like to do this morning in the time that I have is to focus in on our second submission, and perhaps it really is the question underlying everything that we're talking about today, which is whether or not the duty to consult and accommodate can never be ousted by specific language in a Section 35 land claim agreement. And the submission of the Government of Newfoundland and Labrador is that it can. The context for that submission is, of course, the modern land claims agreement. And the briefs that have been submitted speak at great length about how a modern land claims agreement is different from a historic agreement such as Treaty 8, which is raised in the Mikisu case. The modern agreement is a product of a lengthy period of negotiation and presumably involves the equality of bargaining power that comes about because of the resources the two groups have and the ability to hire legal counsel, which then engage in this bargaining process. It's a give and take process. Presumably there's a quid pro quo. 
is collaborative drafting, and ultimately there may be a review of the proposed treaty by the eligible voters and ultimately a ratification vote which is contemplated in the upcoming Newfoundland Agreement. It's submitted that these steps collectively, at least to the extent of the negotiation of the treaty, fulfill the duty for the honor of the Crown in respect of Section 35 of the Constitution. And so within that agreement, it should then be possible for the parties to make a negotiation, to make an agreement with respect to the duty to consult and to accommodate. And the submission of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador is that if as a result of this process, the various governments in Canada and indeed the Aboriginal groups that are engaged in the process should choose to negotiate specific provisions with respect to consultation and to limit the right of consultation and accommodation to the four corners of the treaty that's negotiated and that if this is done through an honorable process and if clear and precise language is used, that that's a choice that those groups engaged in the treaty should be and are entitled to make. And that, to suggest otherwise, to say that there may be an extraneous right or duty beyond that, in some ways goes to the right of self-determinism of the parties that are engaged in that process. In order to achieve such an agreement, clearly clear and precise language must be used. And that language should allow the parties to oust or to circumscribe the duty to consult and accommodate to the four corners of the agreement. And I note uh, in my review of some of the interveners' factums, the suggestion is that that may indeed be possible. The uh, Quanlin Dunn factum, around about paragraph 20, and they make the point in the context of if such a negotiation were possible, makes it clear from their point of view that there would be a need for evidence of clear and plain intention. The brief submitted by the Nunavut Tungavik is perhaps more precise in how it attacks that particular issue and goes on to say around about paragraph 31 that no treaty should be interpreted as modifying the constitutional duty to consult unless it's demonstrated by clear and a plain intention by the parties to do so which is exactly the submission of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. What's your position, or do you, if you have one, on what, even if that's accepted, uh, that you can, by consent, waive the duty to consult, what's your position about what happens to the residual issues that are not covered by the treaty, where the parties have decided that in that treaty there is no uh, specific duty to consult? Would you say that that spills over into the relationship between that provincial government and uh, all their relations, or would you say there is something else that applies when it falls outside the treaty? Justice Sabala, uh, the submission of the province of Newfoundland Labrador is that the treaty defines all, and that that position can be asserted because of the process that leads up to the treaty being developed, and so that uh, if we say, well, look, here's something that doesn't appear to have been dealt with, and the presumption should be that it was considered, and a determination was made uh, that all uh, specific instances that are not accounted for are either dealt with by a requirement to consult or a requirement not to consult. But the treaty defines all. And we're comfortable in saying that because of the process that leads up to it. We believe the process is consistent with the honor of the Crown. And the honor of the Crown is also fulfilled 
by the, the uh, undertaking to fulfill the treaty obligations in an honorable fashion. Is, the treaty is everything. Is the omission uh, not consistent with a different inference, and that is to say that the parties were unable to agree in negotiating the treaty on how to deal with a specific issue and therefore chose not to deal with it in the treaty, leaving it to be dealt with under uh, the broader constitutional duty, for example, the duty to consult. Uh, if I understand your question, uh, Justice Fish, you're saying that uh, what about a situation where the treaty evinces a joint intention not to deal with it or to, or to leave it open to uh, uh, where the treaty does not your proposition is that where the treaty does not deal with or does not impose a duty to consult in respect of a particular circumstance that it ought to be inferred that the parties chose that there should be no consultation in respect of that circumstance. Well, I think there's two ways to approach that, Justice Fish. One is to say, look, in this particular instance, the parties have left open that possibility. They have, through their joint intention, said they wish to leave this open. The submission of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador is, however, that the provinces can also evince a contrary intention, that they don't wish to leave anything open. And so what we're saying is that that possibility should be left open, that if they determine, no, we're not going to leave anything open, that they have that right to make that determination. It doesn't preclude another party saying, well, hold on now, our treaty is going to be different. We're going to leave that open. Certainly they may do that, but the question that, um, that I wish to address is that there can be circumstances where the parties can say, we don't want to leave anything open. It's all in the treaty. At the end of the day, the parties make these decisions, and in this particular instance, may make a decision to limit the duty to consult and accommodate to the four corners of the treaty. And the benefit in that is a benefit for both the parties, and it's the benefit of certainty and predictability. And that's perhaps one of the things that distinguishes the modern treaty from the historic treaty. Modern treaties deal with both substantive and procedural rights whereas historic treaties have perhaps dealt more with substantive rights. And so the modern treaty, through its procedural rights, defines the process for engagement. And it's a process that is one of negotiation as opposed to litigation. And the submission of the province is that this, in fact, promotes reconciliation. Uh, a second benefit is that uh, it encourages treaty making because of the predictable outcomes. And the third benefit may be an economic benefit that has been alluded to in some of the briefs. Um, Justices, those are my submissions, unless you have any questions. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> the court will rise for its morning business. Good morning. 
in responding to the appellants and the interveners, we're going to divide our argument um, into three parts. I'm going to begin um, addressing the facts, um, the First Nations perspective and um, on reconciliation and how that relates to treaty and the duty to consult. My colleague, Mr. Pape, is going to then deal with the issues arising from the appeal, the cross-appeal in response to the interveners, and we'd like to reserve seven minutes for our reply. Uh, we have three factums, our respondents' factum, our cross-appeal factum, our reply to the interveners, and we have a compendium. I'm not taking you to any of those things. I want to start um, by just answering the first question right off the top, it, it, just to emphasize what is probably very obvious, but we, um, the question before this court, of course, is whether the Court of Appeal was correct in finding that a duty to consult applies to the implementation of the Little Salmon Carmex final agreement, and to state the obvious, we agree with them. Um, we say they were. Now, you're looking um, at two very different perspectives on all of these things, a different perspective on consultation, a different perspective on reconciliation, and I'm going to try and give you the First Nations perspective on that, and I want to really ground it in the facts, because that's really what's driving this. It's really, uh, we're having a fairly high-level theoretical debate, but it, uh, it, we really feel the need to have you understand from the First Nations perspective the facts that sit under, underneath this. So what you heard this morning from Mr. Armstrong was, and I think he said this, uh, I think I've quoted him accurately, that the First Nation wasn't really using the land very much, that there was very little evidence of subsistence harvesting use. This is echoed in their factum as well, where they um, talk about the uh, footprint of the application, the land at use here, that it is approximately one-third of one percent of the large trap line. They talk about the fact that Johnny Sam only got trapping licenses a couple of times in the last few years. Um, they also emphasize the fact that the work plan was not um, approved by the minister. All of that, we say, is an attempt to minimize the importance of what is going on here. And, um, to show that the impacts of this land removal would be minimal. So that appears to be their perspective on it, on the magnitude and the kind of effects that this application would have. But that is completely not the First Nations perspective. The First Nations perspective is in the evidence for you and probably can most readily be seen in two of the affidavits, one from Johnny Sam, who's the elder, um, whose trap line is at issue here. And the other one is from Chief Eddie Skookum. Johnny Sam grew up on, well, it's called a trap line now, trap line number 143, but when he was raised on that and lived on it, didn't have that name, um, registered trap lines came in after. He's, it's been in his family for over 50 years, over half a century. He's had it since 1959 when he took it over from his father. It's there that he and his children and his family and the First Nations people exercise what we sort of bracket as traditional activities. It's a very short phrase for a whole way of life, for a complete living with the land, on the land, for having a, a huge education that helps them, that lets them understand what their life is about, what makes them Little Salmon Carmax, what makes them Aboriginal people, what makes them perhaps different from the non-Aboriginal people or the general public in the Yukon. We call those traditional activities and we bracket those as hunting, fishing, trapping, gathering, but it is a life, a way of life. 
And Johnny Sam talks about that he uses that land as a training ground mostly these days for his children, for his grandchildren, and has offered it even for the rest of the First Nation to train other children about these practices that he has inherited from his parents and his grandparents and his great-grandparents. So Johnny says that if this application is granted, it's going to permanently damage the wildlife habitat. This is a man who lives on that land and knows it intimately. He also says it will, he's concerned that it's going to sever their connection with the land. And he's very concerned about that. The other thing he's concerned about is he says it is for that very reason to keep their connections with the land that they entered into the, the uh, final agreement in the first place was to protect that connection. Now the chief raises different concerns. Chief Skookum says that if the, his, his concern is about the manner that this application was done, it's the process. He's very concerned about that. He says that there's a failure to have a proper way of dealing with these issues and that threatens the relationship between Little Sam and Carmax and the government and that also threatens the very ability to effect what they gained in the treaty. So I hope you note that the concerns that are expressed by the elder have absolutely nothing to do with commercial or economic activity. Um, and the concerns expressed by the chief are about the inappropriate process and the damage to the relationship between the Yukon and the First Nation. So the difference, I think, between the perspectives of the government and the First Nation is that the government understands this application as a relatively small piece of land that can be taken up with minimal consequences, and the First Nation sees it as having a very large adverse impact on a parcel of its settlement land, on its traditional harvesting activities, and on its participatory rights, all of which were guaranteed by the treaty. So what they're saying is that this action is negatively affecting treaty rights. So just to go into those a little bit more, the effect on Just to clarify, however, you're, you're yes, not alleging a breach of the treaty, are you? No, we're saying it negatively affects it, but we are not alleging breach, and I think we've been pretty clear that we're not saying that. So how then, help me with the phrase, it negative, negatively affects the treaty. If, you, if we look at it this way, so for example, um, the First Nation has uh, negotiated a treaty that I would say gives sort of three broad categories. Number one is it recognizes their traditional territory, marks it out. There's a map. It's defined, their traditional territory. Um, the second thing is it gives them subsistence harvesting rights throughout that territory, with the exception of um, uh, existing third-party interests. Um, so they maintain their right to subsistence harvest throughout a large territory. They get participatory rights in uh, land and resource use and, and decision-making in their territory, and they also get treaty settlement lands. So this application affects their subsistence harvesting rights by removing some of those rights. Now, the treaty allows that to happen, but it still affects their treaty rights. The, it also affects their treaty settlement land, and I'm going to go to that, um, but basically what it is is that the footprint of this application is 65 hectares, and the, uh, the 
um, Crown keeps talking about it as 65 hectares, but it isn't just 65 hectares. The Wildlife Act also imposes a one-kilometer no-shoot buffer zone around um, private residences. So 65 hectares, you add a one-kilometer buffer zone around that. That's a lot larger. Well, it's, uh, it's uh, one kilo kilometer from the residence. Yes. Not, uh, not from the property line. It's, it's a bit of a, this is a true. difference anyway. It's not, um, uh, they, they answered that in our reply, but even if you take that, it still does extend the footprint of the, of the uh, but, parcel. But I'm still, I still yes. have this, uh, uh, the same problem as my colleague Justice Sashaw about this distinction between something that affects, that has an, a negative effect, and some, but is not an, inv an infringement of the treaty. If you, use, it seems to me, there, there is perhaps the risk of you, if you say, imply that nothing will have an impact on, uh, on uh, uh, rights that are, uh, that are set out in the, in, the, in the treaty, even if it doesn't amount to an infringement, might mean that perhaps everything remove, uh, remains frozen at, uh, uh, at the time of the signing of the, of the treaty, so it, would, it might amount perhaps uh, to, uh, to, uh, to a commitment to never engage in any sort of uh, development. I think that what we're saying by saying that the duty to consult as it is, uh, has been developed in Haida and Mikasu and Cree is that there is a, there's, there's no statement here that the action, that the Crown doesn't have the right to take up land here. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that if it has an effect on treaty rights, an adverse effect, it should be a minimal effect. They should, they have to work to, with the Aboriginal people to understand what the effect will be, and then they have to try and minimize it, and that's what the, as we understand, the honor of the Crown duty to consult has created is that kind of concept. Wasn't uh, Chapter 12 designed to, to achieve that? Well, Chapter 12 was not in place in this situation, so we are, we are not in that situation here. That is, um, we would say that is something that has to work in the future. There's those processes set up, but this case before you right now, that was not in place. This process from Lark here. That's it, but we, we were told that the process from Lark is the equivalent or substitute for Chapter 12. Yeah, I do not agree with that, that it's an equivalent process in any way at all, and um, if I can address that for you, that process could you, could was, you, was, was sorry. In addressing that, yes. in answering that question, I had the, the same concern. Could you tell us um, what it is that you think the process that didn't take place, should have included in order to make it comply with what you say was the operative duty to consult? I will indeed. <laughs> um, let me describe what the process was first, because I think that um, that would be very helpful to you. First of all, this process began in November of 2001. It's a two-part process. It starts out with the um, 
ALARC process, and then it moves to the second part, which is the LARC process. But the first part of it is the Agricultural Land Application Review Committee. That began in November of 2001 when Mr. Paulson put in his application. That process went on until February of 2004. So from November 2001 to February 2004, you had a whole land application process of which the First Nation had no knowledge they were never notified about it, they didn't participate in it, they didn't know anything about it. So you have over two years this process is going on in the complete absence of any participation. We would say right off the top that means that the process was inadequate. What's the end result of an ALARC stage? I, it wasn't clear to me what the relationship was between ALARCs. Is it a preliminary decision at the end of the day? Is it a tentative conclusion? Is it uh, a recommendation? They, they, move, they move it along with recommendations to move along. Nobody's making final decisions until I believe it's October of 2004. Up until then, they're all just recommending that it move along the process. So it's not a decision-making body, LARC? Um, these are all recommendations. Recommendations. So LARC is the decision-making body? No, actually, the, the LARC isn't. LARC is also recommending it for approval. All of these processes are recommendation processes. And from LARC it goes to the government? It goes to the government, yes. So what happened then after that first two-year process was it moved to the LARC process, and that began in February. Notice was received by the First Nation in May. Um, and Pardon? Of 2004. So they, they responded by letter. So what happened is the minute they found out about this, the First Nation went into high gear. They, they gave uh, a letter that set out their concerns. Um, they were not able to attend the meeting on the 13th, but they kept sending letters, and you'll see that's in the evidence, in the affidavit evidence, that they kept sending letters, they kept... Um, Did from they ever ask for an adjournment? Pardon me? They weren't able to come to that meeting? No, and they, they did, did not ask for an adjournment. They did not ask for an adjournment. No. So this three-paragraph letter that's in the material, July 27th, 2004, that sets out their concerns. That's all that was before, as we understand it, before. Okay, but that was, they, they weren't precluded from sending a 20-page letter, were they? They, they sent no, a... they were not. A three-paragraph letter dated 2004, and they are, as we understood it, they are yes. members of LARC? It's an interesting they, question what that means to be a member. Well, they were part of the body that decides what the recommendation should be at the end of the day, and they were not there when the meeting took place, either to make representations or to act in the consideration of the projects. Is that right? They were not there. Was there any, is there any explanation in the record for that? No, ma'am. But they weren't deprived of the opportunity to make representation or to be there in an adjudicative capacity. There's no evidence of that. Okay, thank you. The the um, what also happened though was that after that October, August 13th meeting, uh, when the recommendation went forward, subject to particular um, uh, um, conditions. The um, decision was approved in October of 2004. The First Nation didn't even find out that it was approved until the summer of 2005. So what we're saying to you is that that was a process that happened for almost three years without the people most directly affected who didn't even participate in it until the last five months. Could and you, even then, it was a, a very small participation. So could you we look, think this was not an adequate process. I, okay, I, I just want to hold you to the process. And, yes, ma'am. Because that'll come back to what you think should have happened that was precluded from happening. If you look at the excerpts of the LARC minutes of August 13, 2004, 
And I'm afraid I just have a copy of it. I don't can't pinpoint it in the record. It was Exhibit G. To have 12 of the appellants come Yes, I have it. Yeah, okay. So if you look at the very first paragraph, there's a reference to First Nation opposition regarding heritage, mm -hmm. uh, which resulted in a reconfiguration. Uh, as, as I understand it, I, d I don't, it's my understanding at least, was that that was not um, accurate. From these minutes are not accurate. The reconfiguration was done at the ALARC process, and the First Nation was not involved at that stage. So my understanding is that this is not correct. So the last two sentences of that first paragraph are not correct. There was no concern which was then um, taken into account in a reconfiguration. The, the reconfiguration happened earlier, and as I understand it, had nothing to do with the archaeological or heritage um, concerns that the First Nation had expressed. Okay, so the then the second paragraph. The original parcel was reconfigured in October 2003. Yes, and as you see, that's before the First Nation was involved. Okay, opposition from the First Nation is the last sentence, though, of that paragraph, which says has caused the abandonment of that plan. Uh, I believe that's the timber allocation permit. It talks about the original rectangular parcel. I'm assuming this is all about the Paulson application. This is all about the original application that was amended before it even got to the LARC process. Okay, that's, that, this is my concern. Without so, the First Nation. But it's, it, the first two paragraphs make reference to the suggestion that there was a role from the First Nations, which resulted twice, once in a reconfiguration, and once in an abandonment of a prior plan. I, I would like, I, I can't uh, take you to it right now. I'm very conscious of the time um, and the need for Mr. Pape to get an things, but I would ask you to look at the affidavit of Susan Davis, where she explains, and that is in volume two of the appellant's record, she explains in detail the process that went, that they went through. And when the, the uh, uh, First Nation participated, when they knew about it and when the configurations were changed. And, and the, the three paragraphs in the middle rec where they talk about Little Salmon's concerns, you say that was not appropriate consideration. The process didn't properly include their concerns. The, the process, as, as we understand it, um, looked at, at the concerns that the, that, or read the letter that the, that the um, First Nation put forward, but they did not um, feel that they had to do anything about it. I think that's the big point of this process is they went into this process with an idea that they had no obligation to consult, no obligation to um, accommodate, and so they Where were... Where does that come from? Pardon me? Where does uh, that come from? They actually sent a letter to the chief telling the chief that they were there as a courtesy and they had absolutely no obligation to um, consult, and I will try and find that letter for you, but there is an actual letter where they said that very clearly. Um, so what, what do you say, at the end of the day then, what do you say was missing from the process? What's missing from the process is the concept on the part of the government that they have to take these seriously, that they don't just have to let it be an opportunity to blow off steam for the First Nation, that they have to take it seriously, and that they have to accommodate them if it's going to affect their treaty rights to minimize whatever kind of uh, effect, adverse effect that might have in the end. 
And I think I've gone um, too long, so I'm going to pass over to Mr. Cape. Thank you. Justice Abel, if I could just finish on the issue you were discussing with Ms. Taye. Um, the, the, the thing that we need to grapple with on the process is that the First Nations concerns were rolled out over time. They did write a letter. The letter, you'll see when you get deeply into the facts, there had been similar applications made before the devolution of powers to Yukon and they'd been disallowed by the federal government. Similar applications for agricultural land in this same region. They'd been disallowed for certain reasons having to do with archeological sites and, and such wildlife concerns. The letter that the First Nation first wrote echoed those earlier decisions, okay? The ALARC process had created um, a revised application that government officials liked. They were behind it. So they go into this meeting, and the First Nation has written a letter and raised some concerns. Some of the concerns get addressed in the recommendation from the LARC meeting, and some of them don't. Nothing is done about the issue of the effect on the settlement parcel that had been chosen by the First Nation as a trapper's cabin site for Johnny Sant for this trapline which the evidence shows couldn't be used anymore for that purpose because of the no-shooting zone. The issue of the impact on the, what we call the Toshone process, this process developed through the Renewable Resource Council, which was provided in the agreement as a primary instrument of, of co-management of wildlife and wildlife habitat, a plan that said that this area where the land is needs to be looked at for habitat protection and set a, a, a work plan up to do that. That plan was in process long before th this, th this issue was happening and before the, the meeting at LARC, but it didn't get raised in the first letter, okay? But it got raised at a meeting several weeks later, and the government officials said, we're not here to consult. This is a courtesy meeting. And they never talked about the problem, so they never said, in any way, what can we do about this? We set in motion a three-party joint work plan, including Yukon as part of it, to look at habitat protection for this particular area along the river. Gee, we seem to be out of sync here. What should we do? No such discussion was ever held. And then, and, and that was the issue that Judge Vail said really drove him to be concerned that this uh, this, the issues, the interests that were put at risk here went to the heart of the agreement, right? So we the court had of appeal, The Court of Appeal Sorry. said it had really nothing to do with the treaty. The Yukon government objected that this was a parallel process, and the Court of Appeal seems to have accepted that. They seem to have, and I think they were wrong to do that, my lord. Uh, Justice Binney, they, they, the, these conversations should first of all have been held 
in the consultation process. Why do you care so much? What can we do about it? What about this? I mean, the chief even recommended that the parties enter into a community-based process to look for more appropriate areas in the territory where agricultural land grants wouldn't, wouldn't be adverse to their interests. So the answer in all this, and, to, and to, um, to your question, Justice Sharon, is that what was needed was a process where the issues got discussed and the attitude of the government was, well, yes, we may have the authority to do things that would undermine or devalue um, either some of your interests or the efficacy of some of the processes we have here, but we are committed to not letting that happen because this is a Section 35 treaty. Could you, could you help me by uh, linking the process of consultation that you're describing that ought to have happened and connect it to the treaty? I certainly will. We hear that there was no duty to consult triggered uh, under the treaty. Um, so could you help me? Connecting it under the treaty, how do we deal with... Uh, I'll do the best I can. Attention, please. The, uh, the first thing to remember is that the, uh, in understanding this, is that the umbrella agreement, which forms the fundamentals for all the Yukon land claims agreements, was concluded in 1993. Right? So that's 11 years before the Haida decision. It's a couple of years after the Sparrow decision. As the court said in Delgamook, as Justice Lemaire said, land claims agreements are going to be negotiated in the context of the growing jurisprudence from this court. The jurisprudence at the time was that the Crown was in a fiduciary relationship with Aboriginal people and that it had a trust-like, uh, not adversarial relationship with them. And the agreement is built on that premise, right? The agreement has in it a number of detailed procedural mechanisms it sets down rights, as Ms. Teye says, land, new co-management bodies, um, and, and a recognition that there will be change. It does all that, right? And it's, it sets up macro planning mechanisms, and so on. It lists a number of specific times when there'll be consultations. The consultation definition in the agreement mirrors the law as it was in 1993. It's very much akin to a duty of fairness consultation pro process. No one was talking in 1993 about the constitutional duty to consult and accommodate when appropriate that this court developed in, in 2004 and then continued in 2005. The agreement does not anticipate or mandate that the agreement should be implemented consistent with the honor of the Crown duty to consult and accommodate. It doesn't say that. Well, the honor of the Crown, though, was very much an active concept at that time, and the agreement, perhaps one could argue, uh, anticipated a duty to consult because it talks about consultations. So this is, I'm just trying to get some help with whether it's as black and white as you say. Uh, I appreciate the question. I, I don't say it's black and white. What I say is, first of all, the, the, the term consultation has so many uses, right, in different contexts. My point is that when the term consultation is used in the agreement, it, it wasn't being put into the agreement. The, the definition of consultation in the agreement doesn't mirror what the court uh, defined as the constitutional duty to consult and accommodate when appropriate. And 
Um, there is no question in my mind that the procedures and mechanisms in the agreement can be implemented consistently with, fully consistently with the honor of the Crown duty, including what the, the duty to consult and accommodate really, it's the operational edge of the principle of the honor of the Crown. The, the agreement doesn't mandate the relationship between the Crown, the, 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 between government and the First Nations, and it doesn't mandate a consultation process that includes a duty to uh, accommodate when necessary. No one was talking about it at the time. If there was an assumption anywhere about how will the Crown's decisions be made, because of course the agreement leaves uh, a great many executive decisions to be made by government that obviously will have some impact on the nature of the partnership going forward between the Aboriginal people and government, and an impact on the land parcels, on the harvesting rights, on the trap line, entitlement, and so on. The agreement doesn't address the question of how those things will be done. Can, can I just ask you this question? The agreement contains lots of reference to consultation, and indeed there's a broad definition, as you've conceded, uh, but you agreed in the agreement that uh, right of access doesn't apply to land that's subject to an agreement for sale. Wh why, why didn't you say in, in the agreement, or why didn't you provide in the agreement that uh, before a right of access was to be affected because of an agreement for sale, there had to be consultation along the lines of the same kind of consultation that you did provide for in the agreement? We have no evidence about that. Well, no, you and may I, not I, have any evidence about it, but in, in, in one respect, this could be viewed as a party dissatisfied with what they agreed to coming along later and trying to remake the agreement to say something that the agreement doesn't say. I appreciate the question because, of course, that's what the government says, and it's a, it's a feasible thing to say. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a, it's a better thing to say that... Uh, the parties didn't ask themselves the question, well, will we need to coordinate our activities or have any kind of duty of fairness consultation when the government is going to dispose of land? There are no trig – the Court of Appeal was interested in that question, and Mr. Arvey suggested to them that it, the absence of such a clause may be because there is no clear statement anywhere in the agreement that government can dispose of land that isn't settlement land. I don't know the answer. Uh, Justice Rothstein, but what I do know is that no one sat down and said, well, we're going to have consultations on a whole lot of issues, but we don't want to have them on this one. It's more likely that it was something that went by the wayside or slipped between the cracks because there was no specific trigger in the agreement. Most yeah, but if, if parties are sitting down to negotiate an agreement and something slips by, uh, they don't get a second kick at the can. And we're not asking for a second kick at the can. The proposal here isn't that the agreement be amended. And the application of the duty doesn't amend the agreement. The application of the duty is a way to ensure that the agreement is implemented consistently with the principles and the objectives of Section 35 and consistently with its own objectives. That's what the duty does. It doesn't add something. As you've said, there are consultation mechanisms. Any agreement, uh, th there's nothing in the agreement that suggests that it is fully exhaustive of all possibilities. 
it would be naive and grandiose in the extreme for any such agreement to purport to be exhaustive in that sense. The real question is, what's the relationship between the common law and the Constitution and the terms of the agreement? Do we look to the agreement as the necessary source for applying the constitutional duty to consult and accommodate that this court has developed? I have some difficulty, perhaps I'm not understanding your position. You, I understand that you're asking us to say something slipped here and perhaps we didn't provide for this, but from the beginning, whereas in the whereases of the agreement, it was all about the Little Salmon, uh, Carmack's First Nation asserting Aboriginal rights, titles and interests with respect to territory and wishing to retain um, the interest it assert to settlement land and to protect their way of life and so on and so forth. So, is that not what we're dealing with, that there's, there was an agreement as to ownership of lands and the rights, but there's no consultation process provided for? It's, I have difficulty with the proposition that this was a slip and that we're outside this agreement. Uh, well, I can't, uh, I can't uh, give you an explanation. I don't think the expressio unius rule that is implied in these questions is thought to be good law anymore. We've argued that. But the most, the, the really deep issue here is even when the agreement says on if this kind of issue comes up or that kind of issue comes up, the parties will consult, what does it mean? And does that mean that the parties will consult in accordance with the constitutional duty to consult and accommodate if appropriate? And so we were going to get to this issue whether or not it came up through a situation like this where there is no, it's not on the list, or in some other instance where because the real question is, how will the agreement be read? What is the relationship between the parties? Does that mean, Mr. Pape, I, I just want to try to understand the legal uh, grid that you want us to think about modern treaties as incorporating, that where it has been negotiated prior to this court's jurisprudence in Haida through Mikasu, all of the language should be interpreted in accordance with consultation plus accommodation? I don't think, with respect, that it's an interpretation question. It's an, it's an application question. It's okay. a, an implementation question. Okay. There's but no, it, it's not particularly helpful to do some kind of revisionist interpretation to say that the, the terms of the agreement should be reinterpreted based on current jurisprudence. No, but where, uh, um, um, that's the specific question. Where the agreement talks about consultation, and incorporates it to the extent that they thought they were, or let's assume good faith on both sides, they thought they were incorporating mechanisms to implement the honor of the crown. It's, what I'm hearing is what's missing is the, the paradigm, the administrative law paradigm that set it in consultation has as a final step reasonable consideration. Full and fair consideration, I think, right. is what it says. And, and you're saying that should really be full and fair accommodation rather than consideration. That's how or you want consider consideration. Or accommodation when appropriate. Let's, let's talk about this administrative law duty issue. The, it's not a new issue in the court, and it's not a new issue in Aboriginal rights law. Um, and it's, it, I, it, it's certainly, well, 
when Haida was argued here, the government of British Columbia argued quite capably that the concerns that the court had and that the Haida had could have been addressed through the general duty of fairness principle in administrative law. And perhaps it could have been. But the court said, really, the court, in your reasons, you rejected that and said we need, an, we need a particular set of principles for constraining the exercise of government executive authority in the context of Aboriginal or treaty rights that are recognized and affirmed in Section 35. We need principles for constraining Crown action that flow from Section 35 and that support the objective of reconciliation. And so the duty to consult and accommodate was developed as a new set of principles, building on what was said initially in Sparrow, that one of the fundamental objectives of Section 35 was to constrain Crown action. But, but that may be fairly easy to understand in the context of a pre-agreement circumstance where, you, where there's a serious claim, but you don't know ultimately what's going to be agreed or what the court is going to order, like in Haida. Or it may uh, e e be easy to understand even in the case of Mikasu, where the agreement is 100 years old and the circumstances of negotiation were, were different. But uh, now we're dealing with a modern agreement and perhaps the ordinary admin law duties might be a way to uh, consider what kind of obligations there are in a modern case. Well, in my submission, the problem with that, it, it, it's, a, it's a credible kind of approach to consider, but the problems with it are is that administrative law principles uh, are not designed to address the very unique circumstance of the Crown Aboriginal history and the Crown Aboriginal relationship. Administrative law principles, for all their tremendous value, are not uh, tools toward reconciliation of Aboriginal people and, and other Canadians. They are not instruments um, to reflect the honour of the Crown principles. They are not instruments that recognise... Perhaps, uh, perhaps we might say that, uh, that it uh, underestimates the flexibility and the capacity of development of administrative law and, uh, and, uh, and the common law in this, uh, in this area. No, I think... I take your point. Justice LaBelle, and I, in fact, I've said in the cross-appeal that some of the concepts in administrative law can be helpful in defining reasonableness in the context of the duty to consult and accommodate. The point is that the court, and the court could have said that in, in Haida, uh, Justice LaBelle, that the administrative law jurisprudence is flexible enough and the doctrine is flexible enough that we can do it that way. But the court said we need a, a distinct set of principles that grow out of Section 35. And I submit the court did the right thing when they did that because it gives everyone clarity that an appropriate approach here requires the Crown to be respectful and be concerned if its actions may inadvertently or indirectly uh, be a threat to uh, the, the um, viability um, of its agreements with Aboriginal people in treaties or their rights that aren't yet settled in treaties. And so you're that, that, sorry. Well, simply that that concept belongs in a modern treaty. It belongs as the underlying mechanism, sorry, the underlying concept about how the parties relate to each other. It doesn't mean that the government's 
authority that it retained or that it secured under the agreement has been nullified. It doesn't mean that the Aboriginal people suddenly have more than they um, achieved in their agreement. It means that hopefully government and the Aboriginal people will work together in a way to ensure that the treaty is not implemented in a way that the rights, the interests that they secure, uh, the mechanisms that are developed, they need to be implemented in a way that they are building blocks for reconciliation and, and uh, the well-being of the First Nation. But if, but if, but if you're right, what does this do to the efficacy of these kinds of agreements in the future? Uh, what I mean to ask is this. Uh, if you say to the government, uh, we're going to conclude an agreement, and it's going to be binding on both parties, but we've got this residual uh, obligation on the government outside the agreement that, uh, that is a duty to consult, but primarily a duty to accommodate, and we don't know what that's going to be because it's going to depend upon uh, uh, the circumstances of each case. You're giving the government no certainty as to what their obligations are, and isn't that going to uh, have a negative effect on the, uh, on the opportunity of First Nations and the government to come to, a, to, to land settlement agreements? Because the government will say, wait a second, if we don't know what our obligations are, we're not going to be able to either agree, or if we are going to be able to agree, we're going to be able to concede less than we otherwise might because we've got to have something in reserve for these unknown obligations that may arise uh, as a result of the, this kind of un, undetermined duty. Well, the court often hears warnings that if constitutional principles and duties uh, get developed, then uh, that will mean a pullback um, of all kinds of things. But I expect that everyone will recognize that it's not a great stretch to say, as we implement this agreement, we all understand that uh, the Crown continues to have a trust-like, uh, not, not a commercial relationship with the Aboriginal people, and that the parties are going to be vigilant in finding ways to ensure that the efficacy of this agreement and the interests it, of the First Nation that it protects uh, are going to be um, uh, dealt with in a way that's respectful, not uh, a long slide into the incremental erosion of these rights. And Mr. Cape, I would like to know what it would mean in legal terms, in practical terms. You have stated some broad uh, principles, and I would ap appreciate in respect of the disposition of Crown land, you see, how, what, what would that change? during the, uh, uh, what is admittedly a transition period before the full Chapter 12 of the agreement kicks in. Thank you. I, chapter, incidentally, Justice LaBelle, I don't want to oversimplify the problem. Chapter 12 is implemented. There was legislation that became effective at least two years ago. So this regime of environmental and socioeconomic assessments done by an agency that's jointly appointed. It conducts assessments and it makes recommendations. And then the matter goes maybe to a First Nation, but usually to the government. The question still remains, can the government then do anything it wants? Or is there some kind of constraint, some equitable or constitutional constraint on their authority other than is found in administrative law principles. I say the answer is yes, there is. Well, and we might perhaps have a look 
at the provisions of the agreement and look whether what what is there and what was followed uh, by the by the by the by the parties and do you need another structure uh, above and uh, beyond that well the answer i think justice labelle is that the agreement does not purport to define the crown aboriginal relationship it doesn't purport to define the uh, nature of the relationship between little sam and carmax and the government and so it doesn't try to answer the question whether once you go through the process in that case in lark and in this case um, under uh, the chapter 12 legislation the real question is at the end of the the day are there any constraints left on what government can do based on section 35 and the objectives of the land well, the, the, the question is is also to a certain extent once a treaty has been entered into once all its provisions had, had, have been applied and implemented, once a, de a decision is made, admittedly, I think, in accordance with the uh, treaty, is there, is there anything more if the implementation has been done in uh, good faith? Well, the answer that we give is that the um, agreement uh, does not oust the application of the Constitution or the common law. But is it not its fulfillment? I guess that's the difficulty that I have. It was based on this very special relationship. It was based on a constitu constitutional duty to consult, and it was based on this constitutional process of reconciliation. And I think that uh, this is an amazing piece of work towards that process. But you seem to say that we can't recognize that for what it is. It is a huge step in the reconciliation in fulfillment of those obligations. So where, where do courts, uh, why can't courts defer to what both sides have through years of negotiation decided based on all those principles and in fulfillment of those obligations um, they've decided how to, to set it up. And, and as any agreement, there's, this has to be an element of some compromise from both parts. It's Which is exactly what the duty requires. It's a flexible concept. And I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with the agreement. I'm suggesting that the, the, what, what the court did in developing this duty, this constitutional duty, is something different from what's done in the but agreement. But I, I suppose that's my precise question. When there's nothing wrong with the agreement, that we look at it and it seems to uh, be a fulfillment of those obligations, on what legal basis do we hang our hat to say that over and above this agreement, there is an extra restraint on the government? What, what is it based on? Is the difficulty based that on the I principles have? principles in Section 35. So that means what it may amount to is that uh, you have you have the treaty pro process and if one of the parties is not satisfied with the outcome of the treaty pro process then you re uh, you revert to pre-treaty mode well we're not talking about that with respect and you are perhaps not talking about that but i'm wondering about the legal effects of the uh, of the propositions you're advancing this uh, this, more, this morning and their impact on the whole uh, treaty uh, pro, uh, pro, uh, process. Well, uh, in, with respect, the 
The difficulty in this, in this uh, issue is in uh, sorting out the task of the common law and the constitutional common law and the task of agreements like this. And it's, it's fundamental that agreements like this, whether they're between governments or commercial parties or governments and Aboriginal people, they do not purport to do the same thing that the common law does. And as, as uh, Doc, uh, Professor Rotman said, uh, the, the parties do not decide their own fiduciary. That's a role of the court. Uh, as the court held in the, the Struthers case, uh, there may be a contractual relationship between a lawyer and his client, but the court has overlaid that contractual relationship with fiduciary responsibilities. The court has always said that the relationship between Aboriginal people and the Crown is special. And because of the history, uh, the, 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 the government is bound to um, uh, ex have a relationship that is trust-like, not adversarial. In my respectful submission, what you see here, what you see in the letter that was written in 2004 that says, when the agreement says consult, we'll consult, and otherwise you're just like everybody else, and we'll do it however we want. You're just the public. When the government says that, they are, it's code for saying, you agreed to that, that's all you got, now we can do what we want, and we don't have to be concerned. We have no, no legal or constitutional constraint on our exercise of our executive discretion. In my respectful submission, that is not right. Can it I? is much, sorry, please. I'm, now I'm going to intervene because otherwise I just have to line up way too long and I'm very anxious to get to this because I, I'm trying to figure out whether I'm hearing you properly. I know you resist an approach which says you interpret the treaty in accordance with Section 35. I'm not really sure why. But it seems to me that the difference between what you're asserting and what the language of administrative law and, and possibly this agreement says in full and fair consideration, really does lie in the way you interpret the phrase accommodation. And I think what you're arguing for is that it's not just about the process of consultation uh, in the administrative law sense, it's accommodation in the human rights sense. In other words, it's more than just considering all the factors. There's an obligation, like human rights law, to take it to the point of almost undue hardship, the way we do a reasonable accommodation in human rights. That's, a, that's an interpretation of the third element of the consultation process that I think you would say is consistent with Section 35. But isn't that a, a, a process, that, is, doesn't the interpretation that way offer a reconciliation between the treaty and Section 35 rather than saying there's an overlay? Okay. I mean, if you infuse the words with the concept you're talking about, because you're saying it's not enough just to have the process, you need a substantive consideration that's different from administrative law. Isn't that really what you're talking about? Well, it is, and it may be that, I, that, 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 that an interpretive concept is better than uh, an application concept. I leave that to the court. The, the, the point is that th this court's been very clear that the consultation obligation is not an obligation to talk. It's an obligation to talk and do the right thing. And what that means is driven by case-by-case -case circumstances. Uh, the the uh, decision in Mikasu adopted some language from um, the earlier Halfway River case and put them all together and said, the duty has these procedural components and it has these substantive components, right? 
And that's what we're saying, is that the, and, and that concept uh, grows logically out of the honor of the crown concept, which itself grows out of the history and is a specific concept that's driven by Section 35. We don't expect to find that concept in the agreement, and it's no surprise to me that it's not in the agreement. The agreement does say nothing in the agreement uh, uh, prevents parties from arguing for uh, specific constitutional, for, for fiduciary relationships. And um, I'm going to, I, I need to finish this and do the cross appeal, but I want to show you something that we put in the compendium uh, on pages uh, five. If you have that little compendium, it's got a clear cover. Yukon's uh, authority um, to, to, to set up the LARC process and to uh, um, uh, make this grant comes pursuant to a devolution agreement that was given statutory force by amending the Yukon Act. And on page five of the, uh, this little compendium is uh, an, the, the, the preamble from that agreement. And it, it is very clear. It says in the second principle, the second uh, preamble, paragraph, whereas the Crown and the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are in a fiduciary relationship. And the, uh, uh, I, I would just ask you when you get a chance to, not now, but have a look at sections 1, 7, uh, and 9, and, and 1, 6, which make it clear that the principles that were articulated in Sparrow, which was the law at the time and what informed the development of the agreement, all um, are consistent with us arguing that the kind of uh, attitude that is argued for by Yukon in this case um, is not appropriate and is, is, does not accord with um, uh, the honor of the Crown. And that saying we'll implement the agreement and we have to do what its terms say uh, doesn't really answer the question. And can, so, can I, uh, because it, it seems to me there's a, a, a fundamental problem underlying uh, all of this, and that is where exactly does the principle of uh, reconciliation and Aboriginal uh, rights end? What is your ultimate objective speaking on behalf of the First Nations? You start out with a, a very uneven relationship between the Crown and the First Nations. Doctrines are developed to redress uh, the balance. The doctrines are very general. They lead to quite ad hoc solutions to problems as they arise, uh, and they are uh, designed to protect and promote uh, reconciliation. But the First Nations say, you know, at the end of the day, what we want is uh, equal recognition and respect as uh, self-governing institutions within the uh, Canadian uh, uh, polity. So what uh, I think the Yukon's uh, argument here is, look, this is a stage of evolution. We are working towards what everybody says they want which is the absence of a kind of paternalistic, we-know-best relationship. Right. And the way to do that is to move from an ad hoc, or consult on this, fix up that, to an institutional arrangement mm -hmm. uh, where uh, you, 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 know, you, you are moving to a permanent 
government to government, First Nation to Yukon government, federal government, predictable arrangement. And what they are saying is you are, in effect, denying your own objective of a a freestanding government-to-government relationship by dragging behind this evolutionary process represented by the modern uh, treaties, doctrines which were designed to fill the gap before there were such arrangements uh, in place. And that is why dragging afterwards the fiduciary relationship, the duty to consult these general principles, you get a dissonance. And, And what you wind up with is an arrangement which is supposed to be a higher standard of evolution then governed Haida before there was a, a relationship, or Mikasu, where there was quite a primitive uh, a treaty. Uh, and what, what, what the argument that is being put forward here really is an impediment to realizing what First Nations themselves say they want, uh, which is not a continuation of fiduciary paternalistic doctrines, but uh, a, a relationship of some equality which is reflected in an agreement made by equal parties, equally resourced over a long period of time. So, I mean, I think really what we're looking at here is what is the end game of Aboriginal rights? When is reconciliation achieved, and how will we know when it has been achieved, if not through institutions uh, such as those at issue here? Well, I think what we're uh, talking about is evolving new partnership relationships between Aboriginal Canadians and others, between Aboriginal people and others. All such partnerships work toward concrete objectives and work on the basis of of, um, specific um, material arrangements and so on, and decision-making procedures and so on. And and what animates them? What drives them? What kind of relationship and, and underlying attitudes drive them? And the, the specifics of what should, what should um, uh, reconciliation look like in the context of Yukon First Nations, it should look like what the vision is, what the dream is, what the concepts are in that agreement. How do you get there? You don't get there if government says, well, we have a whole lot of residual authority, and, wherever, and they do. They have a whole lot of residual authority even when there are new processes. So you don't get there if at the end of the day they say, but look, We've gone through what the agreement said, and we didn't breach the agreement, so we can do what we think is right. And and there is, ultimately, it's for the government of Yukon to decide on a political basis, are we concerned to stop uh, an erosion of the interests um, that uh, the First Nations secured? And if, if they don't need to be concerned about that, and don't need to seek out a way to do the right thing, then in many ways we've reverted to um, a refurbished uh, relationship that is fundamentally one where the Aboriginal people are marginalized in their own territories. There's no getting around it. There's no getting around the vulnerability of Aboriginal people's way of life to uh, decisions made by government. We're not suggesting they should go away, that, that that authority should be wiped out. We're saying that there need to be appropriate constitutional principles to apply appropriate constraints. And in our submission, this duty um, that you developed in this court 
is ideally suited. For example, this duty says, okay, an issue comes up, government's thinking about doing this, Aboriginal people say this is our concern, here's how it's going to hurt what we have been trying to do under this agreement. The duty says the parties need to get together and fashion a, a solution, right? They need to talk enough to understand it and then they need to find a way to minimize the impact or accommodate the interest and so on. Just the words in Mikasin. That's the right way to go. It's not saying, okay, we're going to go to court and we're going to sue you. It's not a litigation-based <coughs> remedy. It's a remedial approach that's driven by an appropriate relationship and partnership vision. Could you, could you help me with this? Um, I just want to get a concrete sense of how your um, proposition would work. Uh, we have some process under this, under this agreement, and at some stage notice was given, and we've been through all that, and, and, uh, and uh, we also have the government of the Yukon on record saying under the agreement they uh, accept that they have to consult and, and they want to do so. We also know that a critical meeting was missed by by uh, your client, and, and no adjournment was asked for, but let's leave that aside for the moment. So we get to the end of that process, and a decision is made, or is about to be made, shall we say, as a result of that process. Um, are you, then you say we have to start consulting again in a different way, uh, and I'm not clear exactly uh, how that is supposed to be structured, what is going to be enough? I take it you're talking uh, another procedural um, uh, uh, remedy here because you're not asserting that there's some sort of substantive way to measure whether this is the right or wrong decision. It's just so we have one process and then we have another process. And how can we be sure this, what is the second one going to add? And how can we be sure uh, that it will uh, be adequate, and how are the courts in the end to judge whether it's adequate? Um, Thank you. Can you help me with the concrete? What, what should the no Yukon have done in this case after they went we, through the first process? Thank you, and perhaps we haven't been very clear. I don't think we're talking about needing additional processes. We're needing the processes and the arrangements in the agreement to be either interpreted or implemented in accordance with the principles in the duty. So there needs to be enough getting together, enough talk, enough consulting to understand what are the potential problems here. And then there needs to be a step where government says, if there are serious problems, and they're serious, now that we've heard you, we do or don't, we understand that, then our job is to work with you or ourselves, if necessary, to find a way to do the best we can so that um, we're doing something honorable because it's not okay for Yukon to say, well, you know, we, we, you didn't win long-term security that um, the, 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 these parcels of settlement land um, could never be made uh, redundant or unuseful by something we do outside there. And we, you didn't win the right uh, to make sure that uh, uh, a planning habitat protection process set in motion by all of us under the Renewable Resource Council, you didn't win the right to make sure that process gets finished before we do something that may undermine it. You didn't win that right, so we don't need to think about that. 
and we're not going to. Well, I don't think that so, the Yukon's on the record is saying they don't need to think about something. Um, and there's also a question of whether uh, fulfillment of the duties in the sense you describe them uh, would, uh, would uh, be satisfied by providing an opportunity as a or does the government have the obligation if someone uh, misses a meeting, doesn't respond? I'm not talking about the facts of this case, but that could happen, that uh, First Nations say, well, we're not too interested in discussing this point. Uh, does the government have to somehow force them to the table so that this understanding is achieved? Um, uh, we have a lot of principles of administrative law that apply in other contexts, and they're varied. Uh, we need to understand how we could develop a process here, if you concede that it could all be done within the agreement. Uh, that, and, and so I'm seeking your help on precisely what you say um, that process would look like, a good process. Well, a good process here, for example, they missed the <laughs> meeting, but then they had a meeting three weeks later with government officials and said, we want to talk about this problem, right? And government officials said, we don't need to talk to you because we have this policy direction in this letter from 2004 that says we don't consult on this. And then they continued to be worried, and the First Nation sent a, a lengthy, what they called an appeal, that raised all the issues together, right, in a comprehensive way. And the government said, well, actually, you didn't have the right status under LARC, so we don't need to look at it. So that can't be the right way to administer the agreement. Now, my point is nobody... I mean, my submission is when that agreement was concluded, I, I say to you, no party expected that the agreement would be implemented in, in, in the spirit that would say, as long as we go through the formal technical uh, requirements in the agreement, we can do what we want. In my submission, that's not consistent with what the law was at the time or what the parties uh, would have thought. Um, and so it's the role of the court to say, well, what are the constraints on you? Well, First Nations, you've got to participate. Uh, you can't just expect government to do it for you. That's already in the duty concept. And so what we're talking about is a unique constraint on government executive discretion. And in my respectful submission, this agreement will achieve its objectives only if the court says those constitutional constraints apply here. You didn't contract out of them. Maybe you could have... What is that constitutional constraint? That, what does the government have to do? That the government can't act indifferently and callously uh, and in an adversarial manner with respect uh, to the interests of First Nations that go to their way of life uh, and, and the, the critical interests that uh, were secured for them by mutual agreement um, in these modern treaties. Instead, the government needs to approach this from a trust-like uh, perspective, not a trust-like perspective because you're helpless wards, from a trust-like perspective because we're in a partnership and we have to get to reconciliation together. Does that the, mean you could never have an adjudicative kind of process like LARC? Oh, no. Well, LARC's not an adjudicative process. No, but I'm sorry. Certainly I'm sorry. the parties could develop administrative procedures. And this Chapter 12 process has, a, has an administrative body that hopefully it will do its job well and the parties will be sure that all the concerns will be looked at, right? And then they can have a fuller, shorter conversation. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to do it all over again. It shouldn't. That doesn't make any sense. The duty needs to inform 
either the interpretation or the implementation of the agreement. That's the best I can do, but the, the point, uh, I'll finish with this and I, I'll just say a few words about the cross-appeal. Uh, I need to leave a few minutes. I've done all this because it's obviously there's no cross-appeal uh, prospects if the whole concept of the application of the duty uh, has no merit in your eyes. In, in my respectful submission, the key to all this is that the whole argument that is brought to you by the government is based on the assumption that these land claims agreements are somehow so comprehensive that they exhaust all issues about the relationship between Crown Aboriginal people or about um, uh, the, 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 the constraints that may flow from Section 35 on Crown authority. The agreements are not such agreements. We don't have such agreements in a constitutional law regime like Canada. That's why the court has a function that supplements all kinds of agreements, not by amending them, but by guiding how they can uh, be and, and must be implemented uh, in accordance with what those agreements are about. And of course, they're all so different, right? Whether it's a human rights code or an Aboriginal treaty or, or whatever it is, then the constraints or the principles that must be seen to have driven decisions, those things are part of the common law. And this agreement was never developed as a way that the common law, the developing common law wouldn't apply. So when this court saw the need to develop a new concept for how to give operational validity and strength to the honor of the crown concept by providing for this duty to consult and accommodate where appropriate as a constraint on executive authority, the court had pushed the common law forward in a way that should, it should be used here. It should be used to ensure that these treaties are in fact effective. So in, in other words, you're saying that in this case there was no violation of the treaty, but in implementing the, uh, uh, the treaty, the Crown has, uh, uh, did not respect its duty to consult. Thank you. That's exactly what we're saying. We've never argued that this was a breach of the treaty. So um, I, I, I only, well, I'm going to stop. The cross appeal is with you. It's based on both the procedural and the substantive requirements um, that the duty um, entails. I say that the history of the way this project was looked at, uh, as Ms. Taye says, it never got to the heart of exploring or addressing the Aboriginal concerns or finding a way uh, to ensure that, to do the right thing, to do the appropriate thing, to ensure that this wasn't another example of this gradual erosion of the position of the Aboriginal people. We've given you our submission on costs. We hope you'll consider it that there should be costs in any event of the cause on the basis of impecuniosity uh, for this very important test case. Uh, and the costs should be uh, on a solicitor-client basis because of impecuniosity. The court's done that before. I'm going to leave myself uh, four and a half minutes for reply. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Arvey. Thank you. Chief Justice, we've been having some difficulties on this end with the audio. Um, I don't know whether they'll carry on. Uh, one solution is uh, to stand me down and to break. 
like, as I'm told, that if the, uh, if the system is essentially rebooted, uh, that might solve the problem. Can you hear me fine now? We are hearing you very well. So would you like to start? And if we run into difficulty, we'll, we'll do all of that. Can you okay. hear me? Because it could be that, yes, it could be that the problem is on my end, not your end. So I, I would like to start. Um, uh, Chief Justice, Justices, um, I am on the First Nation, who's a signatory to the very agreement of the, of the Little Sam Carmack. We are no ordinary intervener. Our clients are directly affected by this, the decision in this case. Uh, what I had intended to do in my 10 minutes was to uh, address the arguments of the Yukon and their factum. Um, and, and that <coughs> argument essentially was is that the final agreement uh, is the complete agreement between the parties and the court cannot go outside the final agreement to find any um, other duty on the Crown. But I listened to Mr. Armstrong on behalf of the Yukon government and it appears apparent to me that the Yukon government has significantly resiled from that position. The Yukon government now concedes that the duty of fairness, at least in administrative law, applies to um, decision-making by the Crown when the Crown is going to transfer land that could have an impact on the treaty rights to harvest wildlife or, or fish. That's a, a significant concession by Mr. Armstrong because now this treaty is no longer uh, a, a, a treaty with a complete, a, a watertight treaty. The, the old metaphor of the Constitution has watertight compartments. Rather, he seems to recognize that the proper metaphor for this treaty as it, as it, as it is in the Constitution is one more of a living tree. The question is, what now is outside of this treaty that can be um, that, the, that the court can look to. Mr. Armstrong says, well, the, what's outside the treaty as the duty on the Crown is the sort of administrative law duty of, of procedural fairness. And, um, and, but he doesn't want to say it's the constitutional duty to consult. And um, we ask, well, well, why is that? And he, uh, he, he but, but he first concedes, before I ask my question, he first concedes that the administrative law duty to consult, sort of administrative law duty of fairness, um, it may be special in this case because it involves Aboriginal people. So we're now outside the treaty, we're dealing with a, a, a duty on the Crown, it's a duty to a process on the Crown, it's, it's, it's a special duty to process on the Crown, uh, but he wants to call this an administrative law duty, not a constitutional duty. And then we get into questions about, is this just a labeling? But then what Mr. what Mr. Armstrong says, the reason why we want to uh, stick with the administrative law duty and not the constitutional duty is because we're not in the paradigm of Haida or, or Mikasview, where in, in that paradigm he says we're dealing with um, asserted Aboriginal rights, asserted title, there's a, a cloud, if you will, on the Crown title. There's uncertainty about whether the Aboriginal rights of title are very, you know, are proven or not. So you need that duty to consult and if need be accommodate when you're dealing with these uncertain Aboriginal rights of title. And he says in this case, there's, we don't have that uncertain Aboriginal rights of title because the First Nations have given up their uh, Aboriginal rights of title in, 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 in return for the treaty rights. And so he says somehow high-dimensity doesn't apply. But what he's forgetting about 
is the treaty rights. Remember, the, the, the paradigm applied in the view is any time the Crown exercises its discretion or its power in a way that might adversely affect not just aboriginal rights or title, but treaty rights, then there is a duty on the Crown, and it's a constitutional duty on the Crown, to consult in a meaningful way with First Nations and indeed be accommodated. My friend seems to forget that that duty applies when there is going to be, uh, when Crown action may adversely affect treaty rights. And so what we have here is not a violation of the treaty, but the transfer of the Crown land has, is, adversely, is adversely affecting the treaty right to hunt fish on, on the Crown land. And so the, 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 there's no reason not to embrace uh, and carry on with, that, with the high of executed paradigm of a duty to consult and accommodate. Once Mr. Armstrong, the Yukon government, concedes that the treaty is no longer the complete and full agreement between the parties, and that you there, the court can therefore look outside of the treaty in, in circumstances like this, there is no reason in principle why the court would not uh, say that the constitutional duty to consult is what operates um, uh, outside and then pervades and infuses the treaty. Um, I, 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 I now want to sort of turn my mind a little more to what uh, I had intended to talk about, which is, uh, which is somewhat more on the assumption that the, the final agreement is um, uh, more the whole agreement as the Yukon alleges. And I, I think I want to address Justice Rothstein's point more, more specifically. Essentially, I think as Justice Rothman says, why is it that um, notwithstanding that there were 67 times, I don't think he used the word 67, but 67 times uh, in the final agreement where consultation was used, why is it that consultation wasn't used um, with respect to one particularly um, important um, exercise of Crown power, which is the power to transfer land. Uh, why wasn't consultation addressed in the treaty? And, and we have uh, a, a couple of answers to that. And, and it's not that it just slipped through the cracks, it didn't occur to people. Um, but rather it makes more sense, I think, to recognize that the power to transfer Crown land is not created by the treaty. It finds its source outside the treaty. And the Court of Appeal addressed that in paragraphs 45 and 77 of its reasons. Uh, the Yukon says, well, the, that the Court of Appeal attached too much significance to that fact, fact because the Yukon actually has a title to the Crown land. It doesn't matter where that title finds its source. But I, I think the Yukon is missing the point. The source of that title is important. And when the Yukon got that title, uh, is important. And, and so if the, if the source of the uh, Yukon's power to transfer land is outside the treaty, then it makes sense that the, uh, uh, that the, uh, that the treaty isn't the place where you would find um, the uh, corresponding duty um, on, the, uh, on the Crown to consult before it transfers the land. It's logical, it makes sense to say that the, if the source of the duty is outside the treaty, then it makes sense that the duty to consult is outside the treaty. 
And if you look at the 67 times in the treaty when consultation is used, um, in many, many respects, I don't want to say in every respect, but in many, many respects, the, um, the, the, the duty to consult flows from duties that are created by the treaty itself. And certainly in every respect, the duty to consult deal, it deals with situations where the power is expressly recognized in the treaty. And, 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 it, and it, it doesn't make sense that this is a very, very important crown power to transfer land is going to be a, a ta a, attract a, a somehow a lesser a standard of consultation than uh, other matters in the treaty of, of less import. What I thought was very significant, another that, that Mr. Armstrong from the Yukon, uh, the point he made was that that chapters like chapter uh, 16, um, sort of, uh, chapter other chapters, chapter 16, chapter 12, chapter 11, they all deal with um, you know uh, environmental uh, land use planning, environmental development review, fish and wildlife management. He says these aren't consultation provisions, and, and he's right. He called them frameworks. And indeed, they, they provide a framework for um, decision-making and usually involve the administrative boards and tribunals with the power to review and recommend. We don't say, we don't, we don't think that these provisions meet the Crown's duty to consult because they still, uh, because they don't limit in any way the discretion of the government um, when it's exercising its power. However, this framework is important um, for the process of reconciliation. But, but what's critical and vital to the, the process of reconciliation is ensuring that the duty to consult um, coexists with this framework. We see the duty to consult as sort of breathing life into the treaty. Uh, if, if the, du the duty to consult doesn't change the treaty, it, 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 brings, it makes the treaty um, come to life, if you will. If I can par pardon this metaphor, if, if the provides a framework, uh, or perhaps a house of promises to the First Nations, the duty to consult um, is, is, is what makes that treaty a home, a home to First Nations, where those promises are fulfilled. And so the, 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 there's, there's nothing inconsistent at all with recognizing the duty to consult with these framework provisions of the treaty. Um, it, it, we also say it's significant that since devolution didn't happen until after 2003, um, it, you can't say that the final agreement is the whole agreement between the parties since, since um, there was still much work to be done. And it, even though devolution might have been contemplated in the agreement, until, until the devolution occurred, it, it's, it's impossible for anybody to say that the final agreement was the whole agreement. I also thought that it was significant that Canada looked outside of the agreement in order to somehow demonstrate that the honor of the crown was met. And what Canada did in, in, in its tracts, and it, it, it looked at... And Mr. Arvey... Uh, I'm just going to ask you to wind up. You are out of time for, and have been for a little while. But that's fine. <laughs> I'll be more proactive. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll 
tree to grow strong um, and, and true in, 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 in pursuit of the process of reconciliation is the honor of the crown, the duty of the soul that has to infuse that tree. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mr. Aldrich, also by... No, you're not. You're here. Oh, good. <laughs> I'll both have the red light, and I've been inspired by Mr. Arve's speed. I'm... I appear before you today, Chief Justice and Justices, on behalf of Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated, an organization representing the Inuit signatories to the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement. If I may start by being so bold as to say, after all we've heard, that the issue before the court is actually can be stated quite simply. The issue is this, whether the Crown's duty to consult Aboriginal peoples before taking decisions that stand to adversely affect the rights of those people is merely a common law doctrine that applies to asserted Aboriginal rights as in Haida, historical treaty rights as in Mikasu, but which is implicitly and automatically extinguished in a modern treaty save and except to the extent that the parties expressly include it in consultation provisions, that is to say Aboriginal people persuade the Crown to maintain it. So that's one vision, that's the vision of the appellants. Or is it rather an unwritten constitutional principle that presumptively infuses every treaty as a part of the constitutional structure of Canada and which cannot be uh, extinguished by implication and into which the parties do not have to contract any more than they have to contract into any other provision or principle of the Constitution of Canada. It's the view that's taken by the respondents and by this intervener. In the few minutes available, I will address four points. The first is to stress that this is not a case of infringement. The second is to say that the duty to consult is not properly characterized as an additional obligation imposed by the court from outside the agreement, as uh, Mr. Armstrong urges. And the third principle is that the honor of the crown cannot be satisfied, reconciliation cannot be achieved merely by entering into the agreement and abiding by the strict letter of its terms. And finally, while the duty to consult may be shaped, modified, given content or particular process by agreement of the parties, clear and plain language is required to do so. To the contrary, this agreement, like others, expressly leaves intact any existing or future constitutional rights. Those are the four points I'll attempt to cover quickly. The first is simply to state again, this is not a case of infringement. The parties are agreed about that. The, the interveners cannot affect the list. The distinction was made in Mikasu. We would simply suggest to the court for its consideration that the distinction be made again, that whatever framework emerges from this would not apply to a situation in which infringement was alleged or established. The second, the honor of the crown from which the duty to consult flows, we say, is an unwritten constitutional principle. It's not an aboriginal right. It's not a treaty right. It is rather of the same nature as those unwritten principles identified by this court in the provincial court judge's reference and in the secession reference. That is, but I quickly go on to say that the court has made it clear that when one uh, asserts an unwritten constitutional principle, it's vital to establish the source of that norm. And in the factum, we set out, uh, as this court has done, that the idea of the honor of the crown has been in English law for centuries. Uh, it's quoted by this court in Marshall. There's the famous cases of 
Paulette that said that the principles of equity are applicable against the Crown. There's Dyson that says that declaratory relief can be sought against the Crown. All matters that define the relationship between the Crown, the courts, and the subjects and are therefore intrinsically constitutional in nature. And we say we're thereby the honour of the Crown, the broad notion, thereby incorporated into the Canadian Constitution by virtue of the preamble. But in any event, as this Court knows so well and has, has described so well over the years, the honour of the Crown is informing the conduct of the British Crown towards the Aboriginal inhabitants of this land is also a notion that's very old. It goes back, and may I say perhaps a slightly different perspective than my friends, uh, we say that the honour of the Crown as a constitutional notion has been known for a very long time in First Indian annuities cases, just as Binney pointed out in, in Marshall, it was referred to, it was certainly referred to in uh, Sparrow and Guerin. The honour of the Crown is an old idea that we say is part of the fundamental constitutional... Nobody is disputing that in this courtroom, I don't think. No, indeed, but what it gives rise to the question, uh, Chief Justice, is therefore... Is it something that stands to be put aside simply because along the, if I can use Justice Binney's words, along the evolution of defining the relationship, we are now entering into a negotiation of a modern land claims agreement. Are the parties entitled to presume the constitutional principles apply? Mr. Armstrong said you should defer to the parties as having assessed the adequacy of the agreement and decided to enter into it. When assessing the adequacy of the agreement, did they assume the constitutional principle of the honour of the Crown and the duty to consult was included or excluded? It was put a slightly different way in exchange between uh, Justice Fish referred to it, Justice Abella referred to it. What about residual issues? What happens to them? And uh, Justice Fish indicated, well, if the parties can't agree, perhaps they left those issues to the ordinary operation of the constitutional law. Quite so. There is no need to suggest that simply because we're in the stage of the evolution where we're defining a modern agreement, that Aboriginal people have to persuade the Crown to accept the pre-existing duty in each and every case. You get to hang on to what there is. And the, the, if, if the parties wish to say, yes, but... We want the consultation to take place in this form, through this venue, through this mechanism, through this procedure. Of course they can do that. It's a good idea. But they must do so clearly and expressly. But what if I may carry on in the few minutes that are left, say there is a real attitudinal difference towards the entire nature of the transaction that we hear today between the government side and the Aboriginal side. And this infuses the discussion and the discourse that is going on beyond these four walls. May I say that the best way of describing it I've thought of is by way of an analogy. When looking at the nature of the land claims agreement, Aboriginal people look at the land claims agreement, the modern treaty, as being akin to entering into a new relationship akin to a marriage contract, a marriage pursuant to a marriage contract. It sets out respective rights and obligations, expectations of each other, with the goal of enjoying a long, mutually beneficial relationship. And as a matter of fact, if you're going to do something that affects a right or interest of the other party, you might want to talk to them about it first. 
whereas the government side seems to view these transactions as bringing about certainty in the sense that a divorce or separation agreement brings about certainty. Okay, we'll agree on how we'll divide the assets. Those are yours, these are ours. We'll agree on the payments. We'll agree on the yearly annuities or the monthly payments. And then we're free to go our separate ways. And heaven forbid that we should be forced to talk to or find out the other's views so long as we comply with the four corners of the agreement that we've entered into. But if you, I mean, that's, that's a bit of a tricky analogy because if there are terms that both parties come to without undue influence, fraud, etc., cetera, uh, and decide to waive rights they might otherwise have under the legislation slash constitutional entitlements, uh, it's rare to find a court intervening. If they do, and if, particularly with the constitutional principle that is so key to the relationship, they do so plainly and expressly, yes, but there's no clear and plain expression that says the duty to consult shall be restricted to these and only these circumstances. There's no such clause in the agreement, number one. Number two, to the contrary, there's the provision that's addressed in everybody's materials but hasn't been spoken of very much uh, this morning, uh, section 2.2.4, that expressly preserves existing or future constitutional rights. And I wanted to close by saying the one point with which this intervener would disagree with the Court of Appeal is the Court of Appeal indicated that they did not consider that the duty to consult gave rise to a rights to be consulted, a constitutional right. And we would simply say with respect, the correlative right to a duty to consult a particular party would be the right on the part of that party to be consulted. Jural correlatives, and it's set out by this court. Uh, Madam Justice Wilson talked about it in McDonald. It's in our materials. So for all of those reasons, uh, we suggest that, uh, indeed, there is a duty to consult. The decision below was quite correct, and we would support the respondent's case. Those are my submissions. Subject to any questions. Uh, Mr. Crane, thank you. Thank you, Chief Justice. Um, I'm appearing here on behalf of the Gwich'in Tribal Council and the Satu Secretariat Incorporated. Uh, both of these uh, groups have settled land claims, and the Gwich'in in fact, are uh, neighbors of the Yukon, and it was part of their land claim agreement that they would have lands within the Yukon. So part of the Gwich'in settlement is uh, lands within the Yukon. Their lands are on the same terms, broadly speaking, as the um, Little Salmon Carmax people, whose agreement is at issue in this case. Uh, this, the terms of the agreements are very similar and they're set out in the uh, Book of Authorities at uh, tabs 5 to 9. Now this case in our submission uh, has a very far-reaching application, not only of course to the Little Salmon Carmax people in the Yukon final agreements, but as the great array of counsel here demonstrates it also, they also apply to other land claim agreements throughout Canada. And an important feature of the case is its 
long-term application not only to the interpretation of the strict wording of the agreements, but also to the implementation of the agreements. And there is a, a, a body of literature that has grown up about the implementation of land claim agreements, reports of the Auditor General and reports of the uh, Standing Committee of Parliament on Aboriginal Affairs, uh, which refer to the importance of following through on treaties and pursuing the relationship and interpreting those treaties and their implementation in accordance with the purposes of the agreements. In other words, not to apply a strict black letter approach to the solution of interpretation and implementation. And those uh, authorities are set out uh, in our factum at uh, paragraphs uh, 13 to 17. Now, Justice Binney asked uh, in the argument earlier this morning, what is the end game uh, to the uh, land claim negotiations and modern treaty settlements? Uh, I don't think this question is capable of really an answer except to say we haven't reached that point yet. And treaties are not perfect instruments. Treaty, treaties are not exhaustive. Uh, as Justice Fish pointed out earlier uh, in the argument, uh, the, there are matters in negotiations that are left to another day. Uh, there are issues that are too difficult to resolve, and in some cases there may be issues that are overlooked. But the law must accommodate the resolution of those other issues. And one of the ways to accommodate those issues is to leave in place the teachings in the Haida case and the Mikasu Cree case as a guide to the resolution of these problems. The Anticipate, Mr. Crane, in taking an approach like that, that what that would mean is there would be one process that would be followed by the treaty, as set out in that treaty, and another for those issues which have not been covered by the treaty, a different kind of uh, implementation of the honor of the Crown or the duty to consult? There again, there may be a... Um, that might be the result in some instances. Uh, I think the problem with talking about administrative law processes is we get into another sort of paradigm. I'm not talking about administrative yeah. law processes, just generally, as a principle. Generally, I would say that uh, it doesn't mean that there is another process. There may be processes in the treaty itself which uh, provide for the forum for the application of those principles. In this case, there doesn't seem to have been a process uh, that uh, fully reflects the capacity for reconciliation, that fully uh, allows the teachings in Mikasu Cree to be applied. So I, I would argue for the, the fact that the duty to consult should be left in place. Uh, it, the, what is at issue is how is it, is it to be applied in a particular context, but it should be left in place. Can it be ousted? 
can, can it be overruled by specific language? Uh, I would suggest it, its application can be commented on, but being essentially a constitutional principle, uh, it shouldn't be ousted any more than the duty of the honor of the crown can be ousted. One could approach this case simply talking about the honor of the crown and crafting something new to apply. In my submission, the uh, duty to consult is an adequate mechanism, which does reflect, as the court's cases have held, it does reflect the principle of the honor of the crown. And the duty applies not only to the interpretation of the treaty, but to its implementation and how it is to be carried out over time. Those are my submissions. Thank you. The court will rise and return at uh, 2 p.m. Alors, bonjour, Madame la juge en chef. Bonjour, Messieurs et Mesdames les juges. Je vais m'adresser à la cour en français. However, if uh, I have questions in English, I can. I will plead in French. Mon nom est Jean-Sébastien Clément. Je représente le Grand Conseil des Cris, qui est l'entité qui a signé, comme vous savez, le premier traité mode. My name is Jean-Sébastien Clément. I represent the Grand Council of the Cris, who signed the Bay James Convention 34 years ago. Yesterday, November 11th, 95, two years before the signing of this convention in um, 73 or 90, I, we had the first modern judgment in the Calder decision. I am mentioning this because I want to insist on how recent modern Aboriginal law is because the Calder decision was made 36 years ago and the Bay James Convention was signed 34 years ago. I have a condensed book of authorities and as you can see I divided my arguments in six parts. I will tell you these six parts. First the criteria triggering the obligation to consult and accommodate. It's the harm uh, created to the right, whether it be an Aboriginal uh, right or a treaty right. Second, constitutional obligations cannot be affected by a treaty. Third, the rules for interpreting treaties do not change the fact that constitutional obligations cannot be affected by a treaty. Fourth, it would be unrealistic to believe that the schemes of modern treaties can cover all situations. Fifth, the process of negotiation of treaties and treaty making does not affect the important powers of courts 
to intervene. And sixth, in this case, an intervention by the court is justified given the confusion during the process and because of the absence of accommodation. I will start with my first point. In Haida, there were two uh, tests for the obligation to consult and accommodate, the existence of the Aboriginal right and the harmful effect. Of course, when there is a treaty, there is a written text, so we don't have to, uh, we can go straight to the second criteria. Comme mon confrère disait tout à l'heure, dans certains cas, dans la Convention de David James, on a le chapitre 22, on a le chapitre 30A qui concerne la foresterie, il s'agit de suivre le processus. Cependant, qu'est-ce qui arrive quand il n'y a pas de processus prévu au traité, comme c'est le euh, cas en l'espèce, puisqu'on était dans une période transitoire? Quand il n'y a pas de, de processus, je vous soumets que la, la Cour doit regarder l'effet préjudiciable potentiel. J'arrive à mon deuxième point. Les obligations constitutionnelles ne peuvent euh, jamais être affectées par traité. Je vous dirais que Que ce soit par les clauses de cession, certitude, l'examen minutieux des dispositions en litige ou par une énumération là, des 67 endroits où on trouve le, le terme constitutionnel, le, le ter terme cons consultation, les parties en traité ne peuvent jamais affecter les règles constitutionnelles du pays. Évidemment, on peut euh, se poser des questions quant à la, à la nature et les paramètres de ces obligations-là. Cependant, l'existence, on ne peut jamais, selon nous, euh, questionner ça. Lorsque les procureurs généraux affirment qu'il y avait une intention claire des partis d'incorporer au traité moderne toutes les obligations consultatives, ils prétendent que l'un des importants attributs du principe d'honneur de la Couronne est uniquement défini par le traité. Je vous soumets que des règles générales comme ça, ça ne se tient pas. Ce qu'il faut faire, c'est de vérifier à chaque cas. Chaque cas est un cas d'espèce, évidemment, quand il n'y a pas de processus. Évidemment, les procureurs des... Euh of course, the attorneys general of the provinces say the solution is very simple. We simply have to modify the treaty. And I would say that's true. It is possible that in some cases that can be done. And it's uh, desirable for everyone, but it's not always easy, and it doesn't happen in every case. Now, the experience of, experience of my clients has proven that, in fact, they did ask to amend the treaty, but that has never been easy, and there was a lot of litigation. In any case, all the principles pointed out yesterday revealed that those constitutional principles are in the Royal Proclamation, the preamble of uh, the Constitution Act 1867, uh, the imperialist uh, policy of the Crown, and all the other underlying policies. All of that means that the honour of uh, the uh, Crown must be protected. And I can imagine the reaction of the provinces if they were told that federal-provincial relations are defined exclusively in the 1982 Constitution Act. Of course the provinces would react, and the evidence of that is your ruling in a number of cases which, where we see that it goes too far. Now the third point of the rules of inter interpretation brings me to state that with respect to the East Main case, uh, 
mentioned by the Attorneys General uh, is a non-issue. The rules of interpretation apply uh, to all types of treaties and this has no effect on the types of uh, constitutional duties uh, that are uh, on the part of the Crown. Now, my fourth point relates to the process of accommodation in the treaty and the fact that it covers all situations. I would say that that is impossible. And this brings me back once again to the fact that when a process exists, it has to be applied. When a process does not exist to respond to a specific situation, uh, you, one has to look at uh, the harm that could be created. With respect to the James Bay Agreement, there are some, some situations which occur and which are anticipated. All the entire legislative and administrative regime uh, relating to the powers of the municipalities. We don't know what can happen in the future, but it could happen that despite this, the existence of this process, it would not address those specific situations and there could be harmful effects. The same thing with respect to uh, the fact that the legislative and administrative regime deals with uh, difficult uh, questions relating to the interests of the Aboriginal communities. This is something that is developing now and uh, in the future there could be situations where it would not be prescribed in the treaty and something would have to be done. A third example is the occupation policies. There are provinces that have policies that are quite significant with respect to occupancy and in Quebec the National Assembly no longer wants to call the Forestry Act the Forestry Act but rather the occupancy, Land Occupancy Act. And the Municipal, Municipality Act talks as well about land occupancy. And so, of course, uh, this has a tremendous impact on the Aboriginal peoples. So what will happen in future? Will these new situations, which in some cases fall under the current regime, but in other cases will not fall under the current uh, regime? So what happens there? Now, because it doesn't fall under the existing re regime, does that mean we should ignore the harmful effects? In my humble submission, that is not the proper approach or the right way to, uh, to address such a situation. I believe the dialogue between the Aboriginal people and the government, as well as the dialogue between uh, the courts and the parties to the agreement, uh, is fundamental. We must maintain that in order to preserve democracy in this country. My fifth point with respect to the evolution of treaties uh, brings me to say simply that the courts have tools available to them to help the parties to continue to dialogue and we mustn't forget that uh, the Aboriginal parties uh, even though they're better represented now than they were in the 1960s still constitute uh, a minority or minorities. So in conclusion my sixth point is that the intervention of the court is justified in this case, given the fact that the process uh, uh, is full of uncertainty because there are irreconcilable positions and it is possible that this uh, situation is causing confusion. So we must ensure that people are able to arrive at accommodations uh, in a serene manner. In fact, there isn't the slightest uh, uh, mechanism 
brought in here that would allow for such accommodation. We looked at the cases uh, that are the rulings that have come down since uh, 2004 and we found 35 such cases all across Canada. Of those 35 cases, the courts looked at uh, the uh, duty to uh, consult and accommodate uh, uh, 25 times when the honor of the Crown is at stake. And in half of those cases, uh, a statement uh, was made that the honor of the Crown was uh, involved. So I want to come back to the idea of modern treaties. Aboriginal uh, rights uh, began with the arrival of the Europeans and 300 or 400 years later um, we saw the situation evolve and there was the Sparrow ruling. But I think it's too early in history to claim that modern treaties are that complete that they can satisfy the principle of reconciliation. Thank you. Mr. Donahue. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, justices, uh, it's my privilege to present this intervention on behalf of the Tlicho government. The Tlicho are a Dene people, approximately 3,000 strong, and their traditional lands are found in the Northwest Territories in the area north and west of Yellowknife, between Great Slave and Great Bear Lakes. Negotiation of the Tlicho land claim and self-government agreement took over 25 years and ratification by the Tlicho took place in 2003 with federal and territorial legislation to follow. The agreement came into force in 2005. The Tlicho agreement is a co-management agreement as well as a self-government agreement and the provisions in it are similar to those found in the Little Salmon Carmax agreement. They include such things as wildlife management, land and water management, uh, and environmental impact assessment. And uh, although I won't refer specifically to any of them, uh, I've included some of those uh, co-management uh, chapters from the uh, agreement uh, in the Tlicho government's book of authorities behind tabs six and seven. The Tlicho agreement and the final agreement are alike in other ways. Both agreements include a similar definition of consultation, and they include a provision to ensure that the benefits derived from future constitutional rights for Aboriginal people accrue to either Little Salmon Carmax or Tlicho citizens. In the Little Salmon Carmax agreement, that uh, section is found at 2.2.4, at, uh, and I'll come back to that a bit later. <clears throat> Both agreements include, as well, a certainty provision and an entire agreement provision. And so as a result of uh, all these similarities, this appeal is of great import to the Tlicho government. The position that we advance is that we support the position uh, put forward and argued by the Little Salmon Carmax First Nation. We agree as well with uh, Council uh, 
uh, who've argued earlier that this is a case which involves uh, the limitation of a right under the Little Salmon Carmax Agreement and not a breach of the treaty. It's our respectful submission that the duty to consult should apply to Yukon government decisions made pursuant to the final agreement when those decisions appear likely to have adverse effects on Little Salmon Carmack's rights. In such circumstances, we submit that the duty applies whether the final agreement calls explicitly for consultation or not. Yukon conceded this morning that the honour of the Crown applies in the implementation of the final agreement. And Yukon, with government interveners in support, argue that the uh, negotiation and settlement of the final agreement and its application by themselves satisfy this honour. In response to a question from Justice Binney about uh, making a negative inference, and from that uh, I understand the question related to Yukon's argument that where uh, no reference to consultation had been made in the, uh, in the final agreement, that uh, it should be inferred that there was no intention that consultation should take place. So in reference to this question, and in reference to a question from Justice Fish as well about situations where the parties just left the matter, matter open, uh, in cases perhaps where they were not able to agree, Yukon argued that consultation is precluded. In our view, that should not be. When the final agreement was settled, Yukon as a party was aware of the First Nation right to exercise subsistence harvest activities on Crown lands. And now that Yukon administers those lands, it takes the position that it can adversely affect the exercise of those rights without consultation. As many of the interveners supporting Little Carmack's uh, position have pointed out, the final agreement was settled, as was the Tlicho Agreement, before the Haida and Mikisu framework was developed by this court. In the final agreement, however, Little Salmon Carmax included a provision ensuring that it could benefit from future constitutional rights. This is section 2.2.4 that I referred to earlier. It seems that Little Salmon Carmack anticipated the possibility of development of the constitutional common law. After all, 1997 was after Garen and uh, Sparrow had been decided by this court, and uh, Aboriginal law was an active area of endeavor for lawyers at the time. Uh, and so it, our suggestion is that uh, Little Salmon Carmax uh, expressly provided uh, for the benefit to derive to them at a later date uh, should uh, a situation like the one that's before this court today come up. Given those circumstances, we suggest that the negative inf inference uh, suggested by Yukon should not apply. It's not appropriate. It appears that Little Simon Carmax uh, anticipated this uh, set of circumstances, uh, and we don't uh, submit, or in our submission, no duty uh, which benefits Little Simon Carmax should be inferred away uh, in, in light of that uh, section. Other interveners have suggested, and uh, we agree, that uh, it should require a, a clear and plain intention on behalf of the parties to a treaty like this uh, to give up those kinds of rights. Such intentions could not have uh, existed at the time the treaty was negotiated because, of course, uh, this court had not uh, ruled 
uh, in these cases yet. So that leaves us with two questions in, in my submission. First, if the duty applies to the final agreement, what role can administrative tribunals or processes play? And secondly, if the framework for the, is the framework for the duty robust enough for application to the implementation of modern treaties? The Attorney General of Canada and other interveners in support of Yukon have suggested that the administrative co-management tribunals set up in the final agreement can satisfy the honour of the Crown. And certainly in Taku Tlingit, uh, this Court found that an environmental impact assessment process outside the uh, context of the treaty negotiations uh, did just that. We submit that such uh, administrative processes, while important vehicles for the implementation of the treaty, should not be viewed as a blanket substitute for the duty to consult. The, the courts will have to take administrative tribunals as they find them in such contexts. They have limited jurisdiction and resources. They may not be able to answer legal questions and they may not want to. Uh, in a, for a variety of reasons, uh, administrative tribunals uh, can help, but for an equal number of reasons uh, we submit uh, that they are not a blanket substitute for the duty to consult. In Mikasu Cree, uh, the court held that the content of the duty uh, could be affected by the specificity of the promises made. And I think that uh, that uh, passage from Mikasu Cree is very apt in terms of uh, the matter that's before the court at this point in time. Uh, in a modern land claims uh, settlement, uh, it may very well be that the, uh, that the requirements of the treaty are, are set out in uh, great specificity. In a circumstance like that, uh, the duty is context-specific and it can be adjusted accordingly. Since the duty arises from the uh, honour of the Crown, which the parties all agree applies in the implementation of the final agreement, we suggest that it should continue to apply to a land claim uh, implementation context and uh, that uh, in our view uh, we suggest that the framework is flexible enough uh, to ensure the Crown's dealings in treaty implementation meet the standards articulated in Haida and Mikasukri. Those are my submissions. <clears throat> Mr. James. So if time allows, Chief Justice, Justices, I'll make four points. And the first point is this, is that at its core, even in the case of modern treaties, the analogy to a commercial relationship or a commercial contract or commercial negotiations is not a good analogy. And I'm going to suggest there's three major reasons for this. First, there's the high degree of Crown discretion that remains in the treaty context, which can adversely affect treaty rights and the way in which they are exercised. Um, this was recognized in the Mikasu Cree case in the case of historic rights where it was recognized that the ownership of the land had been given up, that the hunting right was a right that could be limited over time by land grants, but nevertheless the Crown's discretion was subject to a duty to consult. Second, compared to a commercial relationship, um, the term of treaties is indefinite, very long. Think of a commercial relationship. A long commercial relationship will often be five years, ten years, perhaps, in the case of a commercial lease. 
a typical commercial lease, I suggest to you, is, is probably as complicated in many cases as what we see in these treaties. The reality is, though, that a treaty, when people are sitting down to negotiate them, have to contemplate not just 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years, but multi-generational effects, where circumstances can change and the accumulated effects of Crown decision can leave people in very different circumstances than those where they started out. In a sense, every treaty when it's negotiated is a modern treaty, even the ones in the 1800s. And in time, what we've been calling modern treaties will become historic treaties, and we'll have likely many of the same problems. The third point that I want to make, and this goes to the point made by the Attorney General for Newfoundland in the submission regarding uh, self-determination and autonomy, is that the relationship between First Nations and the Crown in entering into these negotiations and possibly in choosing to exit these negotiations is not the same as commercial players. Commercial players can walk away from the negotiation, end the relationship, go on with their business and not have to deal with each other. The relationship between the Crown and Aboriginal people is not voluntary. It arose at the assertion of sovereignty by the Crown where Aboriginal people became subject to the discretion of the Crown in exercising various powers and will, if, even if they walk away from these treaty negotiations, will continue. And can, the First Nations don't have the option of saying, we're exercising our self-determination, we're leaving this relationship with the Crown. I'm sure many of my clients would like to, but that's not an option. The second point I'd like to make is this. And it speaks to the role of administrative processes and the duty to consult. And it's simply this. There are situations, and Taku River, Haida, and Mikasu all made this clear, where administrative processes can be used to satisfy the duty to consult but that does not mean that every administrative duty or the mere extension of administrative duties will satisfy what the courts have articulated as the duty to consult or more generally satisfy the honor of the crown. I mean, in the court, in, in, in Haida, the court said, look, the crown can establish processes and they will be assessed on a standard of reasonableness in determining whether or not consultation has been properly carried out. In Mikasu, the other point that comes to this is that in Mikasu, the court said, look, the duty to consult can also be tied to the nature of the rights at question. And that addresses the question of whether or not we get into just reopening the treaty. The reality is, even if administrative processes have to address the duty to consult, have to address the substantive rights, the First Nations have to live with the substantive rights and potentially the procedural rights set out in the agreement. They can't say, for example, if there's a surrender, go back and say, well, now we want to talk about Aboriginal title. And that's not what's being done in this case. They want to talk about the effects on the rights contained in their treaty. But what we need to do when we look at an administrative process is ask, does that administrative process do the job? For example, does it extend standing to the First Nation? That's a question that doesn't go to whether or not there's a duty, but whether the administrative process satisfies the duty. Does it deal with the issue at hand? Are there constraints placed upon the administrative process? For example, after Haida, the British Columbia government changed the provisions of the Forestry Act dealing with transfers to limit the factors that could be considered by the decision maker so that many of the factors that were at play in Haida became irrelevant to the administrative process. Does that mean then that the duty of consult to consult could have been limited? 
And to turn it around, even if you're inside the administrative process, the Baker case makes it clear that in order to take into, to determine what level of fair process is needed or to determine what's a reasonable process, you have to assess the nature of the interest at stake. What's the, what is it that this person is coming to the process with? So in my submission, when we look at these administrative processes, it's not that um, you can say, look, this is all that they have. Instead, the question is, okay, given all that's been negotiated here, can we say that this administrative process meets the duties that we'd expect in this context? Third, and this is most relevant to my client, I want to talk about the question of, of the effect that this would have on modern treaty negotiations. This has come up in a number of situations. The first point I'd like to make is that the duty of, to consult introduces an adaptive component to the relationship between the Crown and First Nations. It reflects the fact that over time, because of Crown decisions or because of changes in circumstances that nobody could have foreseen, things may have changed that require a different approach and that weren't contemplated by the parties in negotiating the treaty. And to use the example of, of one of my clients, Songhees First Nation, when they signed the Douglas Treaty in 1850, no one thought that a couple of acres of Fort Victoria would end up in Victoria, Colwood, Machosan, and all of their traditional territory being underneath a city. It just wasn't contemplated. No one thought it through. The duty to consult, though, now allows for Songhees to raise these issues despite the wording of the old treaty. But going further, when you look at a First Nation if the position taken by the Yukon government is correct, look at what they're going to have to do. And certainly my clients will be strongly informed by their own experience in this regard. They're going to have to look at this treaty and say, this is it. This is the end of the road. Have we actually anticipated every circumstance to come? Have we identified every potential crown decision that we may want to talk about? Not just under the existing legislative regimes, but under le legislative regimes or approaches that may be dreamed up in the future, or if there are significant changes in the existing regimes. They're going to have to ask themselves, have we thought through all of the external factors that may affect our fundamental treaty rights, and have we ensured that those are all covered off? Because if not, why would we step away from the current process, which allows for an ongoing dialogue with the crowd, which allows for the evolution of rights, which allows for accommodation. That's what they're being asked to give up. And in my submission, there is actually a negative effect that is implicated in treaty making, in modern treaty making, if the modern treaties really are this end of the road type analysis. And, and, and this is actually where I want to come back to your question, Justice Binney, about what is the end game? And in my submission, that is actually the wrong question in many ways. And in, in a way, it reflects sort of the historic question that the government has always asked. I mean, Duncan Campbell Scott, you know, he's said, look, we have to develop a policy that will reproduce a solution to the Indian problem. From the aboriginal perspective, the end game is actually creating a situation where they can continue and continue to have a dialogue with the government about their circumstances as time goes by as circumstances change, as decisions are made, as their aspirations and interests change. It's not about trying to create a static arrangement that's embedded in a document 
that is negotiated in a particular context or a particular time. That is not to say that treaty making isn't a major achievement. That's not to say that these modern treaties are not much more extensive or much more involved than traditional treaties, are not much more improved. But they are a step on the way to in an ongoing relationship. And it is a bit much to expect that somehow the Aboriginal people would anticipate that they'd come to a, an end of the game. For them, this is about an ongoing discussion. Thank you very much. Mr. Cody. Chief Justice and Justices, the Council of Yukon First Nations, <coughs> excuse me, the Council of Yukon First Nations, which I'll refer to as CYFN, that I represent support the respondents, Little Salmon Carmack's First Nation, in dismissing the appeal and allowing the cross appeal. By way of background, CYFN is comprised of 10 Yukon First Nation members. Nine of the CYFN member First Nations have reached land claims and self-government agreements based on the terms of the 1993 Umbrella Final Agreement. <clears throat> the provisions of the Little Salmon's Carmack's First Nation Final Agreement are the same for all intents and purposes um, as the provisions of the final agreements entered into by the members of the CYFN. CYFN has intervened because the outcome of this appeal will affect all CYFN members who have signed a final agreement and may dissuade other CYFN members from signing a final agreement. The position taken by Yukon that it has no duty to consult beyond that explicitly set out in the final agreement will have a serious adverse impact on the subsistence harvesting rights of CYFN members, which are treaty rights in the final agreements. The right to engage in trapping and subsistence harvesting on Crown lands throughout the First Nations traditional territory is a critically important treaty right that is essential to the way of life of these Yukon First Nations. There are five points that I would like to address in the time allotted to me, um, and it's set out in the outline, the condensed book, which was provided. The first, position, uh, the first point is that the Crown must act honorably through consultation and accommodation. The process by which the Crown can take up the land subject to treaty rights is dictated by the duty of the Crown to act honorably through consultation and accommodation, and I refer you to, to Mikisu, which has been discussed thoroughly here today. The duty is a constitutional imperative that infuses treaty making and treaty interpretation with the objective of achieving reconciliation, and that's from Haida. The duty to act honorably is especially important with respect to treaty rights because those rights form an integral part of the consideration for the surrender of large tracts of land, and my reference for that is Badger, the underlying narrative in the Little Salmon case resonates with similarities to the historical treaty cases. Large tract of land, people are uh, um, um, uh, relegated to reserves, in this case to, uh, to settlement lands, in exchange for treaty rights which include subsistence harvesting on, on the much larger extensive uh, land. Um, the, the assertion by the Crown of an entitlement to act unilaterally where there is an adverse impact on treaty rights is the antithesis of reconciliation and mutual respect. My next point is the final agreement does not eliminate the duty to consult. 
The final agreement expressly recognizes the right to subsistence harvesting on Crown land and recognizes that rights under the final agreement are protected under Section 35 of the Constitution Act. There is no express right for the Yukon to dispose of Crown lands in the final agreement. My friend relies upon common law and legislative right, but the common law <coughs> and the legislative rights to make such dispositions is subject to the final agreement to the extent that there is a conflict or inconsistency, and I refer you to the Yukon First Nations Land Claim Settlement Act. The final agreement provides that ambiguities and uncertainties must be interpreted in accordance with the preambles and objectives. A purposeful application of those provisions shows the party's intentions to protect the First Nations way of life, preserve its culture and identity, guarantee the rights of Yukon Indian people to harvest, and provide for their ongoing needs for fish and wildlife. The interpretation advanced by the Yukon that they can dispose of Crown lands without consultation is inconsistent with these objectives and therefore inconsistent with the party's intentions as expressed in those preambles. As in Mikasiu, a process is needed to resolve these conflicting rights. In our submission, that process is consultation and accommodation. My next point uh, was raised by Mr. Donahue, and that is that the duty to consult is a constitutional right contemplated in the final agreement. The final agreement provides in section 2.2.4 that it shall not affect the ability of Aboriginal people from the Yukon to exercise or benefit from existing or future constitutional rights. I think that makes it clear, Justices, that at the time this agreement was entered into, they knew that the law was involving. They weren't sure what all their rights were, but they wanted to leave the door open. I, I don't think there's anything else you can take from that. In addition to that, in section 2.6.5, which hasn't been referred to here today, that section preserves the fiduciary relationship between the Crown and the First Nation. That particular provision says nothing in the final agreement precludes any party from advocating before the courts any position on the existence, nature, or scope of any fiduciary or other relationship between the Crown and the Yukon First Nations. So when my friend, uh, Mr. Armstrong, says that this was the final agreement, all Aboriginal claims and titles were extinguished, uh, I would respectfully uh, disagree that it was clear that the parties understood that the law was changing, they needed to leave the door open, and it was very important to do that to conclude the agreement or there would never have been an agreement in my submission. And on a go-forward basis, <coughs> if the parties are required to sign off finally, I don't think that there will be that many uh, treaties being entered into because of the reasons that were expressed by the, my, the person who spoke just before me. Under uh, uh, that, that, the, that point of the duty to consult uh, being in the final agreement, the duty to consult is a constitutional duty that gives rise to a correlative constitutional right to be consulted in circumstances where the duty is triggered. And I cite two trial-level decisions that describe the duty to consult as a constitutional right for the First Nation. And why is that important? Because in Section 2.2.4, there was a preserver preservation of any future constitutional rights. We submit the right to enforce the duty to consult and accommodate is a future constitutional right for the purposes of Section 2.2.4. Alternatively, as Mr. Pape has argued, if not a constitutional right so that it fits under 2.2.4, then the duty to consult exists outside the terms of the final agreement as a constitutional duty arising from the honor of the Crown. And as Mr. Justice Binney pointed out this morning, 
that duty can't be extinguished, but it may be fulfilled. And so the next step in the framework, framework would be to look at the treaty, the final agreement, and see if it fulfills the duty to consult, as we say, exists uh, from outside the agreement. Recon my next point is that reconciliation does not end with the signing of the treaty. It is ongoing and requires honorable imp implementation of processes contemplated in the treaty. The final agreement is only one step to the path on the path to reconciliation. If, con if, if it contemplates an ongoing relationship of joint planning and decision making, and if the processes contemplated in the final agreement to allow for consultation have not been implemented, are not functioning as uh, contemplated, or in accordance with the honour of the Crown, or insufficient given the nature or seriousness of the contemplated disposition, then the necessary consultation must occur in other ways. In this case, it's our submission that the Crown has not established that the final agreement processes were implemented. And as said in my outline, paragraph 11, the reasons for that. There's no evidence of a regional land use planning commission for the First Nations traditional territory that it was functioning when the pulse and application was considered. Number two, the new development assessment process was not yet operational. My friend admitted that this morning. Number three, recommendations made in the jointly prepared Tachoni Fish and Wildlife Management Plan that Mr. Pape spoke about this morning, which was so important, were not implemented before the Paulson application was approved. The burden of proof rests on the Crown to show that the duty to consult and accommodate has been met. And I refer you to the reasons for trial at paragraph 123. So in our submission, if the processes in the final agreement were insufficient or not implemented, the Crown must establish that the processes which were employed met the duty. The trial judge correctly found that the LARC process did not meet the duty, and I refer you to the reasons for trial at paragraph 117 and 119. In concluding, in conclusion, we submit that the final agreement represents a first step on the road to reconciliation. In order for reconciliation to occur, the final agreement must be implemented and interpreted in a manner consistent with the honour of the Crown and the Section 35 protection of the First Nations treaty rights. The subsistence harvesting rights in the final agreement is of critical importance to the First Nation, as is clear from the preambles and objectives in the final agreement. This important treaty right cannot be rendered meaningless. Proposed land dispositions by the Crown with an adverse impact on this right give rise to a duty of consultation and accommodation. This duty was not met in respect of the Paulson application. That concludes my submissions. Thank you, Justice. Cody. Mr. Hutchins. Chief Justice, Justices, I'll be referring uh, perhaps one or two times to our condensed book, so I would hope that you have the condensed book of uh, Assembly of First Nations available. I, uh, I'm Peter Hutchins, and it's my privilege to appear on behalf of the Assembly of First Nations. Uh, <coughs> AFN uh, is pleased uh, that... Uh, um, the intervention, however tardy, according to Canada, uh, did capture the attention of the Attorney General of Canada. Uh, in Siwi, uh, which uh, appeared in about 20 years ago, we suggested that the uh, AFN actually represents 
and is, in a sense, the Attorney General for the Indians. So we're always interested to hear from our vis-a-vis. -vis. Now, uh, in terms of the uh, points, I'd like to cover three points. First of all, the, the, this appeal is clearly a constitutional appeal. Uh, obviously, administrative law plays a role, but it invokes really the funda fundamental and the foundational constitutional principles that were uh, <coughs> spoken about by this court in uh, the Quebec secession reference. And it talks to our constitutional history, and it talks to the architecture of our Constitution, which the court again referred to several times in the Quebec secession reference. And I am obviously going to concentrate on one aspect of that architecture, which is Section 9124 of the Constitution Act. The second point is that Canada's duties owed to Aboriginal peoples through, as a result of Section 9124, cannot uh, be abrogated, cannot be definitively delegated, uh, and uh, we give you the law in our factum. The issue here, of course, is that we're dealing with a treaty, and uh, treaties are not to be obviously modified without the consent of the parties to that treaty. Before you so, go too deep in, in your argument, uh, maybe I've missed it, but what's put against you is that this is a new issue that was not raised uh, and that we don't have a, a record or full submissions to deal with this issue. What is your response? To well, that? Justice, I, I suggest that this uh, is not a new issue. Uh, two, two reasons. First of all, first of all, we, we identified, I think, clearly in our application for leave to appeal, uh, to intervene, that this was going to be the core of our argument. And uh, in being allowed to intervene, we presumed that the court uh, saw this as something that of interest and importance uh, for the court. But in any event, um, it, I suggest with great respect that we cannot say that the role of Canada in uh, treaty making in the uh, relations with Aboriginal peoples uh, is something that is new or could be said to be new in this kind of an appeal. We're talking about a treaty, we're talking about, and, and my friends on both sides have spoken eloquently about the treaty, uh, uh, the treaty uh, <coughs> role of treaties. I respectfully suggest that the role of Canada is absolutely key in this and that that is why we wanted to bring it to the court's attention. We are not seeking declarations with respect to Canada, but we do suggest that in this context uh, the court should consider our arguments with respect to the role of Canada. Can now, me what, uh, can, I, can I just ask? Yes. What, what is it that you're asking us to accept as, as the fundamental principle? It wasn't the fundamental clear to me, even from the fact, of, I'm afraid. The, the, well, the fundamental principle, uh, Justice, is that ultimately uh, the, go the governor, uh, the, uh, the uh, Canada, the crown in right of Canada, is ultimately responsible for the relations with Aboriginal peoples and protecting and ensuring their protection. So that if in a case of a treaty which suggests that a territory uh, has duties to consult, or indeed a province has duties to consult, but we're dealing with a territory. 
Ultimately, AFN suggests that Canada retains an oversight, retains an overriding responsibility to see that that is done properly. Now, in the case of something like the Little Salmon final agreement, it is a party. Yes. So your position is what with respect to responsibility, that Yukon doesn't have any? No, not at all. Uh, just as, of course, in, in uh, uh, Haida, uh, this court said that there is a duty on the provinces to consult. There is a duty on Yukon to consult under the uh, terms of the, uh, the treaty. But ultimately, and this is what we're saying, we're saying that there is a ultimate responsibility, indeed an ex exclusive legislative authority in Canada, and that can this cannot be altered definitively or irrevocably by signing a treaty saying you are going to have that responsibility, not us. Uh, and at least the treaty must be read that way. Now, we're not suggesting meddling in the detailed processes, but we are suggesting that Canada cannot be allowed to simply uh, delegate away by proxy um, its ultimate authority. I'm a great believer that uh, we have a section 9124 in the Constitution, and I've said again and again that if we don't like it, and if we don't accept it, or if it is not the modern way, then the way to deal with it is an explicit amendment to the Constitution of Canada using the, the uh, uh, amending formula. But until we do that, it is there and Canada continues to be responsible. But this, you know, posits a kind of continuation of the relationship with Queen Victoria's the great white mother who's going to look over all these things and look after her children and the whole process over recent years is to try to get rid of that concept and say, no, these are people who stand on their own feet, who now have the resources to make uh, agreements, and we should move beyond uh, what you're now seeming to suggest. Well, with respect, uh, Justice Biddy, uh, uh, if many of the treaty people who signed the number treaties on the prairies uh, held very dear and continue to hold dear the fact that those treaties were signed with Queen Victoria or with the Sovereign. That is a very important part of the understanding of First Nations in the treaty making. Uh, I do not accept, with great respect, uh, that the position of AFN is going back to some sort of uh, a desire for a, uh, a overarching responsibility in terms of the daily lives of First Nations. But I am saying, and I think we, tr we tried to make that point, and perhaps could I just, in answer to Justice Pitty, could I take you to uh, tab 24 of our condensed book? I was going to take you to the famous letter of the Deputy Minister uh, just to juxtapose these two, but let's forget about the Deputy Minister. He's been referred to. Uh, on the second page of this, uh, this tab, you have uh, an extract from the Select Committee of the House of Commons, UK, 
on Aboriginal, uh, on Aboriginal issues in British settlements, 1837. Let's, let's, and this is what we're trying to say. When I said that there's an architecture, uh, and that this court talked about an architecture of the Constitution, part of that architecture had to do with spacing, distance, perspective, um, counterweight, and that is what 91 and 92 has to do. In this case, the select committee says the protection of the Aborigines should be considered as a duty peculiar belonging to the appropriate and appropriate to the executive government as administered either in this country or by the governors of the respective colonies. And it goes on. This is not a trust which could conveniently be confided to the local legislatures in proportion as those bodies are qualified for the right to discharge of their proper functions, they will be unfit for the performance of this office. Now, I don't have time to continue to read it, but I commend it to you. The point being that local legislatures were, in a sense, uh, in conflict of interest. They had a mandate to develop the territory, to settle the territory, and this was not exactly I consonant guess, uh, with... I that guess ca that Canada changed a, li a little since uh, 1847. Uh, with respect, uh, Justice LaBelle, I, I think it has, I hope it has, but some things haven't. The good things haven't. And uh, our Constitution, our Constitution, <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> um, our, our Constitution uh, has been modified, but as I say, Section 9124 is still there. And it was put in there, and we give you the authorities, for this very reason. It was to make sure that the central government was ultimately responsible for Indian affairs in this country. And uh, I, think I still you, think it has a place with great respect. Well, thank you very now, much for that submission. Well, thank you, uh, Chief Justice. Um, I leave it to the court to read our extensive factum. And uh, if there are no questions, thanks so much. Thank you, Mr. Hutchins. Uh, reply, Mr. Armstrong. And then after that, I'm proposing uh, a short reply uh, on the cross-appeal, if you wish, Mr. Pate. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices of the Court. I have only a few points to make in reply. I'll reply first to the interveners, uh, then to the respondent on the main appeal, and then to the respondent on the cross-appeal. Uh, on the matter of administrative process, some of the interveners have suggested that uh, the administrative processes should be taken as a blanket uh, uh, substitute for consultation. Uh, here we're dealing with this case in particular. Here we are saying that in this case the uh, Yukon government uh, in adopting the process which it did in following the Lark process, being the predecessor to the process under the, under the agreement, uh, acted honorably, uh, and that there is no justification to add a duty to consult and accommodate on top of that. The, the framework adopted here, as I pointed out, is a predecessor to the Chapter 12 and the YESA framework. And that administrative framework is one which is developed and agreed to by the parties under the uh, final agreement. Uh, Secondly, I'd like to 
just emphasize again, we have done so in our factum, the right of Yukon to transfer land. Uh, we uh, say that the Court of Appeal uh, erred in saying that the source of the right to transfer land was outside the agreement, and therefore it was open to add duties of consultation onto that uh, right. We say that's a wrong reading of the agreement. This is a land claim agreement, and it deals with land rights comprehensively between the parties. The, uh, certainly the agreement includes a release of claims against Crown land, and as we say in our factum, that release perfects the title of the Crown. And that goes back to the St. Catharines case and Delgamook, et cetera. So title is not an issue. It wasn't the point made that the, at the time the agreement was concluded, it couldn't have had that power because there had not yet been devolution from the federal crown to the territorial government. And therefore, uh, it, is, it is not a matter that, that it is a matter that was outside the agreement. I think that was the reasoning. The justice, the, the pre-devolution. An issue was raised with respect to devolution. Devolution was contemplated in the agreement. The release against crown land was a release against crown land is defined in the agreement as uh, as uh, land vested in the crown, whether the administration and control is appropriate to the commissioner of Yukon or not. So the release went to the crown land, and the the. The agreement also provides that in section, uh, uh, in the the final agreement, that government may determine, uh, government is defined in the agreement as as meaning Canada or the Yukon or both depending on which government have responsibility from time to time for the matter in question. And there are provisions in the agreement for, uh, in section two, uh, to provide that the government may determine from time to time which level of government has authority to uh, to exercise uh, certain authorizations. The uh, devolution in Section 2.11.1 of the final agreement provides that any reference to legislation or an act or provision of an act includes successor legislation, uh, where which replaces federal legislation as a consequence of devolution. All of this was contemplated. No one can say at this stage that the uh, that the agreement, that, that the authorization of Yukon to deal with Crown lands in the Commissioner is not something which is contemplated within the framework of the agreement. Uh, there was some discussion about unforeseen circumstances. Certainly the, the transfer of land is not an unforeseen circumstance under the agreement. Section 6.2.3 itself which addresses the First Nation right to access to Crown land, specifically says it doesn't apply to land uh, transferred to other parties by agreement for sale. And Section 11.7.1 says that uh, where uh, government proposes to transfer land, it should do so in accordance with any applicable land use plan. A similar provision, 11.7.2, says the same for the uh, First Nations. The um, response, several of the respondents made reference to 2.2.4 as yes. uh, incorporating rights over and above what was agreed to in 1997. Yes, Justice, and I will agree with, uh, deal with 2.2.4. I can find my note on, on that. Uh, 
and we address 2.2.4 in our factum, we say that the, uh, that, that clause uh, is designed to preserve constitutional rights not otherwise dealt with in this agreement. That clause is subject to Section 2.5.0, which is the release of land claims. And, and we say that the proper interpretation of that clause is to address uh, matters not otherwise, constitutional rights and issues, not otherwise addressed by the parties uh, in the agreement. Uh, and we say further that the question of the duty to consult is not such a constitutional right. It's not an overarching constitutional right. We simply get right back to the issue of whether, in the context of this case, there is a, a duty on the Crown or the government uh, to, uh, or, or what duties flow from the honour of the Crown uh, in the particular circumstances. So we say Section 2.2.4 doesn't, doesn't assist uh, the, uh, the respondents in this case, Justice. Uh, just one uh, small point on the connection between the LARC process and the Chapter 12 and YESA process. In Chapter 12 at 12.19.5, 12 uh, that paragraph says that that's uh, pending implementation of, uh, of uh, Chapter 12. It's not to affect existing development assessment processes. And in this case, uh, uh, as you know, this application went through under existing development uh, assessment processes, both the YIA process and the LARC process. Uh, just a, a, a very brief point on uh, the last uh, intervention. Uh, we have responded in a, in a factum to the uh, AFN a factum, and we have stated that the Yukon government has legislative, executive, and administrative authority. Uh, AFN a factum, and we have stated that the Yukon government has legislative, executive, and administrative authority. In Canada, the Crown authority is exercised through the executive. It's executive authority. Uh, typically, it's ex the Crown authority is exercised through the executive. It's executive authority. Uh, typically, it's exercised in Canada through ministers of the Crown. In Yukon, it's, it, it, it is it is in the same way exercised through ministers of the Yukon government, and they are exercising the executive authority. And, we, and in this case, there's certainly no challenge brought in these proceedings to the authority of the Yukon government. In fact, the proceedings began with an application for a declaration that the Yukon government had certain responsibilities, and that's the, that's the foundation of these proceedings. There is no claim uh, being brought in, in these proceedings respecting uh, Canada. The, uh, uh, just in brief response to, to Mr. Pape, the, the court asked Mr. Pape about what the process would look like uh, in, in his submission if the process which was adopted was not, uh, was not satisfactory, what would that process look like? And that process is described in the cross-appeal factum at paragraph 90. And in that, uh, in that factum, the, the, uh, the, uh, the First Nation 
invokes the Musqueam case, which was a case in, in British Columbia involving lands within an urban area. Uh, uh, and, of course, there was no treaty between Canada and the Musqueam or between British Columbia and the Musqueam. Uh, the process proposed in the First Nations factum is that the parties should sit down and by mutual agreement determine what the process of consultation should be, that they should by mutual agreement determine what the risks are, and then by mutual agreement determine what the accommodations should be. It's effectively taking that process back very much to a, a pre-treaty uh, process. Uh, a question was raised by the court with respect to uh, small applications such as this leading to cumulative effects. Certainly Chapter 12 and the YESA process deals ex expressly with, uh, with cumulative effects. Just briefly in, re in reply to the, to the cross appeal, uh, we certainly uh, submit that uh, in this case, if there is a duty to consult, if, if that is the determination of the court, that the duty lies at the lower end of the spectrum, and we cite Mikasu in that context, and we say that the Yukon process met the duty to consult in the circumstances of this case. Uh, one of the interveners talked about Yukon using a black letter law approach to the agreement, saying, well, uh, uh, the agreement itself doesn't provide for consultation, so that's at the end of the matter. And that is really a, a very unfair and incorrect characterization of the a position of the government, which is reflected in the letter uh, of January 2004, which is in our condensed book, in which the government says, we don't see the duty to consult in the agreement. It's not there, and that's not contested. But we are, have a process in place to, uh, to consult with you, small c consultation, uh, and that was the, the LARC process. The, uh, in that process, uh, the First Nation, we know, was given notice. The First Nation's letter of July 27, 2004, setting out its concerns, is at tab 11 of our condensed book, and the LARC meeting minutes are at tab 12. There was a suggestion this morning that the LARC minutes are not accurate. That's not the evidence here. There's no challenge to the accuracy there. Those LARC minutes reflect the fact that uh, the application made by Mr. Paulson for farmland was modified in a number of ways. There was a timber application which was taken away uh, as a result of, of, of concerns. Uh, there, w the, the parcel was uh, made smaller and the parcel was moved away from the river. There were a number of modifications made. Uh, so it wasn't a matter of simply uh, hearing, the, hearing the concerns, noting them and then proceeding. The uh, LARC committee uh, acted very responsibly uh, in, uh, in modifying this, this particular parcel of land. The, the, the comment was that these were made before the concerns of the, uh, um, the respondents were made known. Yes, the LARC, in the LARC uh, minutes, they are looking at the uh, modifications made to this, to, this, uh, to this land application over a period of time. They are reflecting that in, in the early stages, concerns had pre previously been raised respecting uh, uh, timber applications and heritage matters that were known to the committee. And so those modifications were made. And we say, certainly, 
what the committee was doing and the government doing responsibly was looking at this application in its, in its preliminary stages and making modifications, uh, taking into account the interests of the First Nation. And then when the First Nations letter came in, further modifications were made uh, as well. Uh, and notification given that there was compensation, for instance, on uh, commercial trapping, et cetera. So this, this was a, we say, a full and a responsible process. It was responsive to uh, issues uh, relevant to, to the First Nation. There, um, there was a reference to the community working plan. Uh, uh, Ms. Taye and uh, Mr. Pate both referred to that community working plan. We've, we have responded to that in our, in our factum. This plan is not a formal uh, uh, land use or wildlife management plan adopted by the minister. It's a work plan. It's a statement of objectives. Uh, it's not a treaty right, as the Court of Appeal uh, found. It does contemplate land applications. It doesn't freeze land applications. The wording in it says, uh, and, and this, uh, this work plan, the reference is the appellant's authorities, uh, the AAR volume, the appellant's appeal record, volume one, pages 55 and 56. And it says in there, the review process for land applications in this area needs to consider the importance of wildlife habitat. So it's clearly contemplating that land applications will continue to go forward. And we know that LARC uh, considered the importance of wildlife habitat in its consideration. A further important point is that the party responsible for pursuing the objectives set out in, this work, in the work plan was the CARMAX Renewable Resources uh, Council. And that's a council which includes membership, First Nations membership. And that council was given notice two times by LARC of the Paulson application and did not come forward with any submissions. So they did not feel that there was a concern, or at least we can infer that by, by their failure to come forward that they were concerned about uh, this particular work plan. And Chief Justice, those are all my uh, submissions in reply. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Pape, on the uh, cross-appeal reply. I appreciate the opportunity, Chief Justice. I know it's irregular. I ask you to decide the cross-appeal with a view to setting the standard for how the honor of the Crown principle and some configuration of the duty to consult will operate in the context of this agreement. That's really the role of the cross-appeal. I believe you will find some way to bring the honor of the Crown and this duty that you developed into the operation and implementation of this agreement because the agreement itself invites you to do so because it says itself in 262 that laws of general application will apply unless they're inconsistent. And in, that, in saying that, it includes the common law in the definition of law. So the issue in the cross-appeal really blends with the issue that was discussed so much this morning about how can the duty operate in the context 
or the honor of the Crown and become operational in an effective way in the context of this agreement. The Yukon asks you to uphold the decision of the Court of Appeal that the duty was met in this case, and I say if you do that, you undermine all the principles that you have already articulated um, about this duty. The duty is triggered at a low bar. It's not supposed to be triggered only when a bunch of lawyers sit around and have long discussions about really is this serious and what are the rights and are these rights or interests and was this a finished uh, uh, concluded plan so that we have to take it into account. It was a low bar to ensure that potential adverse impacts will be considered and where possible accommodated. The duty you've said, the honor of the crown therefore, has both informational and response components. The Court of Appeal did not face the fact that the way this decision was made, the head of the department approved this grant knowing that there were several issues raised by the First Nation that had not been considered by the LARC process and were not the subject of recommendations to him. Now, it's true that the First Nation didn't go to the meeting, but they made their points clear and officials knew what they were. But the department had said, I see no problem in the way the LARC process operated. Now, if the duty is going in some form is going to apply to these agreements, it can't apply in that kind of ex post facto formalistic way. It must have substance and the Crown must be prepared to talk and understand what the concerns are. They didn't hear. The but Court Lark, of Appeal Lark is a, a body that recommends. The, the, the decision is taken by the director. Yes. So if there's a judicial review, for example, it's the director's decision. Yes. So the fact uh, that the minutes may not have dealt adequately with the concerns uh, doesn't mean that the director, having been made aware through the minutes of the First Nation concerns did not consider those concerns. Well, he doesn't say that he did. That's the point. When his officials are told about the problem with this uh, wildlife management plan project, they say we're not here to consult. And when he gets an appeal with all the concerns in front of him on paper, um, uh, comprehensively, he says, I don't need to consider them because under the LARC process, you don't have a right to raise these issues now. So he says himself, I'm not considering these things. But he's no right to appeal. I'm not sure he said, does he say exclusively, I'm not looking at all these concerns that have been raised? We have no record of any response component in relation to these issues. All of it has been discussed in court. But there's no record that these things, and there's nothing in the decision, and there's no measures put in place um, to, to address them. So there, there was no real consultation in the way that you said it was needed, uh, it needed to be done in Miccosu, and there was no response component. Let me just make two points. If the duty somehow in the honor of the Crown is to apply here, it must be substantive and it must uh, reflect an attempt to understand and to find out what, how to do the right thing. Finally, Mr. Uh, Armstrong says, well, you know, in, in the situation in, in uh, Musqueam, they needed to find agreement because they didn't have a land claims agreement. 
Well, it was a very substantial problem, much more substantial than the problem before you. But surely, trying to reach agreement, both on a process for consultation and on what might need to be done and what should be done, surely that's something that belongs every bit as much in the proper honor of the Crown uh, procedures after land claims as, as before. In fact, perhaps more so. So our recommendations about mutuality as a concept to be built into the honor of the Crown post-land claims agreement, I submit, uh, are right and that the Yukon's position on this is wrong. And thank you very much, Chief. Thank you. The court will reserve uh, its decision on the appeal and the cross-appeal. Thank you all. The court stands adjourned.